0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to be joined again by Professor Yusha Patel. You must welcome, sir. Asalaamu alaikum.
1: Wa alaikum salam, wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, uh, Haji Paul. Wonderful to be, be to be back.
0: Good. Yeah, lovely to have you back. For those who don't recall, um, Dr. Yusha is associate professor of religious studies at Lafayette College, a liberal arts college located in Pennsylvania, USA. His scholarship explores Islamic scripture and tradition with a focus on how Islam has shaped and been shaped by Muslim interfaith encounters in the Middle East and beyond. He earned his PhD in religious studies from Duke University in the States. This fall, he will be the Abdul Aziz Al Muwatta Visiting Fellow at the Oxford Centre for Islamic Studies at the University of Oxford here in the UK. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Dr. Yusha did a fascinating video on blogging theology titled Can Muslims Imitate Non-Muslims? An Islamic Examination. Today, he will give us a further presentation. This will be extended uh, from his first presentation, partly in response to viewer comments to the last video. But also, he will explore, inshallah, other issues uh, based on his recently published book, The Muslim Difference. Which discusses Muslims imitating non Muslims. So, sir, over to you.
1: Thank you. Bismillah, Rahman, Rahim, um, was sala to was salam, ala rasuli lahil karim wa ala alihi wa ashabi ajma'in. La ilmenana illema al lamtana in neka anta adimun hakim. Robbish rahli sodri, wa amri, wa hlun octetamil nisani qawli. Okay, so what I want to do is, um, uh, I'll give a brief overview of the overall presentation, uh, lecture talk, however you want to describe it,
0: mm.
1: which builds on the first uh presentation and talk uh, that we did a couple of weeks ago, which I really enjoyed, and partly in um, uh, you know, response to some viewer comments and questions, and partly. Mm-hmm kind of reflecting back on the presentation and thinking that, you know, this is uh, a complex topic that one could do a, a, a series on, an entire course on in reality. But there are some things that I wanted to discuss in more detail and more depth. I wanted to review a few things um, and hopefully uh, answer some of the questions that may have been lingering in the minds of some of your viewers and in all likelihood um, provoke some more questions <laughs> and comments uh, as you know, we, we proceed. So, what I'm going to Absolutely. do now is just uh, give a brief outline of the, uh, the presentation and, and the trajectory that we're going to take today. So, first, I'm going to do a brief, brief, brief recap for those who may not have had an opportunity to see the first presentation. Of course, it's advisable to, but not yeah, rep-
0: I'll, I'll link it in the description below, folks. If you haven't seen it, do watch the, and you want to watch it, do watch the first part. Uh, you can click on the link below.
1: Fantastic. Um, I'll do a brief recap. Um, Then I'm going to talk a little bit about Islamic orthodoxy and thinking about um, what it is and how the subject matter at hand uh, of tashabbuh as we're going to explore imitating uh, others' uh, figures into that. I'll discuss briefly the middle way, religio-cultural sharedness as it relates to Muslims, of course. What practices does tashabbuh, and I'll once again talk about this term, uh, include, um, what are the Islamic rulings on Tashabbu, which is something that we didn't really get a chance to talk about um, last time, but I but I think will hopefully be um, beneficial for those uh, who are interested in this, uh, the more fiky side of things. Um, and then once again, something we didn't really have a chance to talk about in much detail, but just to think a little in a little bit more um, uh, uh, detail or, um, or give more attention to Muslims living in the West. And then opportunities for Q&A and yeah. questions that you may have, Paul, not to say that you can't interject, um, of course, you're That's more than or to, in fact, it makes but sense. But just I mean. on that penultimate <laughs> point, it wasn't a long way, so
0: I will be asking you about the uh, the recent incident in France where the uh, the French government had uh, unilaterally decided to tell uh, young Muslim women what they can and cannot wear of a particular item of clothing in French scores, which has generated a huge amount of uh, reaction, uh, most of it entirely negative, I think. So I'm going to ask you about that, inshallah. But in the meantime, over to you.
1: Fantastic. So, briefly
0: to the recap. Okay. Uh-huh. So, once again,
1: the uh, what I want to do is begin with this uh, hadith of the Prophet, sallallahu wasallam, which really anchors this topic, this subject um, of imitating non-Muslims. So, once again, in, in Arabic for interested learners منهم, which I've translated here is whoever imitates a people becomes one of them it's a canonical hadith um, it's uh, collected by Abu Dawood but by many others like Ahmed ibn Hanbal um, Abdul Razak and, and others uh, the the um, uh, gradings of this hadith on the scale of um, weak um, fabricated, good sahih or sound or authentic uh, there's a bit of a, you know, some disagreement because of the transmitters, um, some disagreement on the narrators, on the want of this hadith. But um, I think we can confidently say that it's a hadith, at least according to traditional methods of grading hadith, that we can say is sahih li ghairihi. Not necessarily intrinsically sahih, um, but at the very least because of the um, the bulk and the, the, the number of narrations, the quantity of narrations that we have of, of this hadith, one that elevates what might be considered a Hasan uh, narration to one that is Sahih, the Ghairihi, or extrinsically Sahih, extrinsically authentic. Now, this Hadith anchors uh, the subject of imitating non-Muslims um, because it is, despite its pithiness, um, it's, uh, tremendously potent. So mm. it is an example of what um, the Prophet ﷺ himself called his capacity to. Uh, as he says in a hadith I was sent by God to convey big expansive meanings or with the capacity to convey big expansive meanings in a small quantity of words so in other words granted the capacity with economy of speech but speech that is uh, saturated uh, with with meaning and significance uh, and that was a gift that our Prophet ﷺ had, and this hadith mm-hmm. okay. is an excellent example of that. So, um, in the initial presentation, I, I opened up with the figure of Muhammad Asad, who uh, lived um, in the 20th century, and drew upon this hadith to argue uh, that Muslims, <coughs> excuse me, Muslims should um, be different. Muslims should be proud of being different, and shouldn't be uh, afraid of doing so, whether in um, majority Muslim context or non-majority Muslim context mm-hmm. um, And this hadith was, was a key factor for him So one of the reasons why we can consider it such a potent hadith And why it drew so much attention um, uh, Drew so much attention by later Muslim scholars Was because it uh, um, speaks about some big, big topics. For example, identity and alterity, or more, perhaps more simply, our relationship between self and other. This is a huge topic. right? Any human being has to confront uh, or at least deal with the idea of who am I and who else is out there in the world and how am I going to interact with them. This hadith is one of, um, is a hadith that connects and relates to this idea of shape.
0: and if you love the fillet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6 limited time only
1: price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer single item at regular price Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. the relationship between self and other it also um, links uh, um, these big big topics once again of becoming belonging and identity it ties them together and says that you know if you emulate or imitate a particular group or people, you become like them. Uh, so it also that becoming that process of self cultivation, self transformation is connected to belonging. So in other words, the the connection between the individual and the social, the individual and the collective, um, and how that defines one's identity. This is a, this hadith speaks directly to this um, social dynamic. And if you think about the Sahaba, for example, why do we Value the Sahaba uh, companionship. It shows how important having companions was to the Prophet's mission, and even to our own practice of Islam, we look to the Prophet Wasallam as an exemplar, but we also look to his companions to learn what Islam is. Uh, but this speaks to a much larger, broader, a much broader social process that our identities are defined not just by um, uh, ourselves, but through our interactions with others. And this hadith um, uh, draws attention to this very complex process in such a f- small number of words. And then finally, uh, another reason why it, drew, it continues to draw attention today is because it uh, it helps to illuminate the relationship between religion and culture, which is another very important topic, especially, I would say especially, but really for Muslims everywhere. I could argue it's especially... Uh, Uh, salient to Muslims living in Western countries, North America, Europe, Australia, etc. But it really is important to Muslims everywhere. What is the connection and relationship between religion and culture? And imitation is a subject and emulation and assimilation are subjects that bring this this relationship uh, into the foreground, rather to the background. So these are some reasons why this hadith is so deep, it's so profound. Uh, One could have an entire course on this hadith alone In fact I've you know written so much about it Because it is just so uh, fertile So fertile for for thinking about These really big picture topics uh, f- That I think would thrill Any intellectually inclined Muslim or non-Muslim for that matter mm. So once again to this key Arabic term That I spoke of in the last presentation Just to remind viewers um, you know, Number one what the term uh, is And how to pronounce it Tashabbuh Uh, fifth form in the Arabic. And uh, even though I I translated as imitation the majority of the time, its semantic field is in fact more expansive and encompasses English terms such as mimesis, simulation, assimilation, uh, mimicry, and resemblance. And one wouldn't be wrong in certain contexts to translate tashabu with any one of these terms. Uh, and, And people have and people continue to do so. So I just want to give viewers an understanding that even though I will use imitate uh, for a majority of this this presentation, please keep in mind that this Arabic term uh, is, in fact, more expansive than the term imitation and uh, encompasses these other English terms as well. Uh, And once again, thinking about the the subject matter in relation to other forms of imitation uh, within the Islamic normative tradition, um, we can, and this is just a schematic, it's an oversimplified schematic, but it's one that I also mentioned in the previous presentation, and this as a reminder uh, and as a review for viewers (coughs) to see Tashabu within the broader context (coughs) of imitation within uh, the Islamic tradition. So we know and we've heard, um, you know, we commonly hear uh, the idea of ittiba' sunnah, the uh, idea of following the sunnah of the prophet is something that is Good, intrinsically good for um, believers to do if they want to become pious, come close to God, uh, come come to love the Prophet wasallam in both inward and, and outward matters. Uh, another uh, form of imitation that is considered broadly positive is taqlid and that's uh, often in the context of following a, a school of law or a madhab. Um, and I have asterisks uh, once again by Tashabu and Taklid because sometimes. Uh, these terms are not necessarily good or bad. So tashabbu can be good, and tatlid can also be perceived as a negative thing. Um, So just to kind of uh, review uh, imitation within the broader uh, conceptual landscape um, of the Islamic tradition, and to position and see tashabbu, the idea of a kind of a reprehensible imitation that emerged within Islamic tradition, Islamic discourse, um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, and so once again, the kind of conceptual connection between negative imitation and being different is that if Shabba was an Arabic term in the hadith, in traditions, um, uh, conveys something of an imitation that Muslims should shun, that Muslims should avoid, then the implication is that it's also a command, as it were, or an exhortation to be different. So if I tell Paul, do not imitate um, Scottish people and by wearing a kilt, just hypothetically, right? No um, a no, not a problem. Not a problem. I was born in Edinburgh, Scotland. Nothing against this.
0: I didn't know that. Gosh. OK. Yes,
1: uh, yeah. Now, anyway. <laughs> um, so if I said I, make that, I, I uh, encouraged Paul to do that um, and I encourage you to do that, that would also be, by implication, an encouragement to be different, to be distinct, to stand out. So just to draw a connection between not imitating or bad imitation and being different. In some ways, being different is the positive command, whereas do not imitate is a negative command. And, but the implication and the, um, uh, the, uh, effect, the effect, the rhetorical effect is, is the same or similar at the very least. So that is a brief recap of, you know, some of the key points I wanted to bring up from the previous presentation. And I wanted to um, just now move on and move forward and go uh, in more depth into some topics that we may not have had an opportunity to discuss in the level of detail that I wanted to. So um, if it wasn't apparent, if it isn't apparent now, and if it wasn't apparent in the first presentation, I would like to make it apparent (laughs) now that this uh, topic, this subject of imitating others, the subject of tashabu relates to how we think of Islamic orthodoxy. Islamic orthodoxy is a kind of a fancy way that uh, religious studies folks talk about um, correct Islam or correct Christianity or correct Judaism. What is the correct form of uh, belief? What is the correct form of practice? In fact, correct practice has its own specific uh, nomenclature orthopraxy. But orthodoxy is kind of a a broad term that speaks to um, any uh, like normative attempt by religious practitioners, religious thinkers to define what is correct belief and practice and what is incorrect belief and practice. Um, So that's kind of what we're talking about here for those who are may not be familiar with this terminology. Often how Sunni Islamic Orthodoxy is kind of portrayed is through this dialectic between sunnah and bidah, and I know if you, you've had at least one guest to talk about what bidah is. So mm. bidah, um, for those who are, may not be familiar, is uh, innovation, but a bad kind of innovation uh, in re- especially rit- ritual practice. So if um, uh, Brother Paul, you know, sent out a tweet today that said it is now obligatory for all Muslims to pray six times a day, <laughs> <laughs> um, and that is. The, okay. the actual way of practicing correct Islam, that would be uh, a very blatant example of uh, innovation or bid'ah, of, of a, 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 a heretical innovation, a reprehensible innovation that I'm sure would draw a lot of condemnation and criticism and say that's bid'ah, that is not the sunnah, and that is not correct Islam. So often the way correct, you know, defining correct Islam is portrayed as a dialectic between Sunnah and Bada'a. We should imitate the Sunnah, we should follow it, and we should not innovate or uh, diverge or deviate, which is a common word you often hear, from it. Um, And that's all, uh, you know, fine and dandy. Um, But what I want to do is help to think about orthodoxy in light of the concept of tashabbu. And this is not something that I think people speak of enough um, whether in academic circles or uh, in Muslim circles, but the is a analogous concept, is a parallel concept to Bida, in that it is a is a mechanism for uh, maintaining orthodoxy and Sunni Islam in particular. Uh, so the the kind of uh, the the rulings, the exhortations of the Prophet that are associated with this doctrine, with this teaching, have a similar effect. That is to keep uh, Islam, as it were, um, uh, orthodox or correct Islam. Uh, and so this kind of model, this kind of schematic that I have here on the slide, uh, helps us to understand that these terms, um, uh, sunnah, right, following the way of the Prophet, the example of the Prophet, bida, reprehensible in, uh, innovation, tashabbu, reprehensible imitation, they have a, 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 a function within Islamic tradition. And that is to maintain Islamic orthodoxy. Now, I want to emphasize that some people say there is good forms of bid'ah. In other words, there's um, not everybody, but some scholars believe that there are some good forms of uh, innovation that do not take away and do not um, harm Islamic orthodoxy. And likewise, uh, there are forms of tashabu that are good good and positive and likewise do not <clears throat> harm islamic orthodoxy so i want to emphasize that as well right these uh, islam is a a deep religion it requires nuance it requires thought and um i want to to the best of my ability uh you know convey that uh to to you to you all is it is this does this make sense paul what do you think
0: Absolutely. no i'm all very clear so far yep i'll let you know if i get confused
1: spectacular fantastic i'd love to hear that <laughs> Okay, so that's the the section on orthodoxy that I just wanted to share. Now, orthodoxy is a topic that one could once again write books on, but I just want to sort of give a a, a simple introduction to help understand uh, the role and importance of tashabu within the the Sunni Islamic tradition in particular. Now what I want to talk about in a little more detail is religio-cultural sharedness. And this is a topic I, I mentioned Briefly in the previous presentation, but I want to talk about it in a little more detail because I think it's helpful for understanding and putting t- into perspective um, the subject of tashabbo or imitation. And I think some of the viewers, um, you know, it, it, it would be helpful for them to, to see this in particular. So here's kind of a Venn diagram and the shared mm-hmm. <laughs> ind- indicated by the lines. Um, I used to be a math nerd, so I like Venn diagrams and these visuals. Mm. So I don't know if it's entirely clear uh, in this slide. It looks a little bit um, like it's washed washed up away, but um, especially this slide did not come through for some reason. But that's okay. Uh, What I want to do is this slide says alterity is a continuum. That's what it says on the top, even though it got cut off on the right part. So what I mean is that alterity or otherness, how we think of the other, right? the other being not not you, not the self, is a continuum. It's not simply a um, black and white binary, right? In the Quran or empirically in our lives. Um, Thinkers, religious studies thinkers, anthropologists uh, speak of the other and sometimes use specific terms to distinguish between different others. So you can have a distant other and a proximate other in relation to the self. So what does that mean? So, for example, um, in Quranic nomenclature, right, uh, the kafir, right, or a or the mushrikeen um, in their most, uh, I think, um, virulent virulent forms, um, aggressive forms would consist of the distant other. Those who are, uh, you know, distant and distinct from this Muslim believing self. But then you have other others or different others That we can call the proximate other Or the near other Um, And the best uh, Example of this in the Quran Is the people of the book Or the Ahlul Kitab Um, And and I think this is actually helpful For for a lot of Muslims uh, It's actually I think obligatory Requirement for Muslims everywhere To have this more nuanced understanding Of otherness Uh, Because many 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 folks think that it's either you're a believer and then you're just non-believers. And then everyone is the same. And you, and you kind of paint everyone, uh, all non-believers, with a single paintbrush. And that just isn't. That's not how the Quran treats otherness. And that's not how the Islamic tradition has treated otherness. And that's not how we today should treat treat otherness uh, either. So I, I want to make this clear because I don't think I made it clear enough in the first presentation. And I think it's really helpful. And I think it's also very important uh, for um, Muslims and non-Muslims for that matter to have this conceptual apparatus uh, in mind and something that I teach my students when we talk about interreligious cooperation and conflict that otherness is is not just black and white we can talk about otherness as a continuum and as a spectrum and uh, one key a key term here is the near other, approximate other and the distant other which is washed out here in the slide but it's there at the end of the arrow um, how is uh, is anything confusing about this Paul?
0: Uh, crystal clear?
1: Okay, fantastic. So um, the claim that I'm making, right, is the Quran portrays the Ahlul Kitab in general as the proximate other. This doesn't mean that you can have individuals, right, that may act in such a egregious uh, way as to place themselves as the distant other. And we certainly had that during the Prophet's time, where certain folks who were once near others acted in a way treacherously. Um, or belligerently to the prophet and to the believers in a way that placed them as the distant other. Um, so it's it's not as if people are all inherently intrinsically locked into one of these categories. But it's a helpful kind of um, yeah. Uh,
0: kind of, I, I just is well to the Quran says that, that that we can marry the 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 women of the people of the book, you know, Jews and Christians. We can eat their food as well. And and that and that is not extended, I don't think, beyond that particular categorization uh right you anticipated
1: my next slide i have a better (laughs) here as a way of connecting so i I like this uh statement from abdul hakim murad in traveling home Uh, maybe you can read it Paul. i like i like your uh you have an english
0: accent reading an english guy because uh uh, (laughs) is an englishman of course a revert he's uh, otherwise known as dr tim winter from cambridge university um, there's a good book traveling, I recommend it we can share bread and a bed with fellow scripturaries unusual word, and there can be close neighborliness and conviviality um, precisely so
1: right, so this is, you know, his um, kind of slightly lyrical poetic way, however you want to say this of saying that, you know, the, the Quran accords uh, <clears throat> and certain key verses in the Quran say, hey look, it's okay to um, for a Muslim to marry a a uh, uh, um, a, a Jew or a Christian, uh, for that matter. Um, and well, I don't, I don't know what, what
0: that supposed to be. That, that kind of toast thing with that dollop on the top of it. <laughs> <laughs> don't uh, don't don't the Brits well, like their their, their their jam? I thought the Brits like oh, it's them. jam. Oh gosh. Okay. Yes, this is true. Yes, yes,
1: I'm going to guess it's jam. Yes. It's,
0: it's, let's be kind. It's jam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um,
1: I do like my strawberry jam as well. Um, anyway one of the survivals for my my uh british lifestyle i suppose um so so this indicates the kind of uh conviviality to kind of use the word here that muslims can share with uh some non-muslims now this this kind of statement isn't accorded or at least explicitly stated um with regard to uh, more distant others doesn't mean that you can't necessarily have dinner with uh, an atheist for that matter um, not, we're not necessarily saying that, but the Quran is kind of conve- is trying to convey a message here that the Ahlul Kitab are a, a, a special kind of people, um, and they have a special kind of relationship to uh, the followers of Muhammad uh, in their shared claims to uh, revelation and monotheism, and and so we need to keep this in mind. It's really really important to keep this in mind to keep mm-hmm. this uh, element of sharedness in mind. Uh, you know, once again, it doesn't mean just we're all the same, um, and there's no distinctions. We're not saying that, but this sharedness is important enough for the for, for Allah Subhanahu wa Taala to mention. And if it wasn't significant, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala wouldn't have mentioned it, and He wouldn't have dis, uh, distinguished um, the Ahlul Kitab as, se- as a separate category uh, from different others. So this is important for. Muslims all around the world, especially in the West, for those living among non-Muslims, to, to keep in mind. This broader perspective, this broader, this bigger picture, uh, especially when thinking about the subject of tashabbu, because I think for some Muslims, they lose this perspective when they kind of get lost in the the tashabbu traditions. And, and and this is something that I try to do in my book is to give the big picture perspective so that we can keep uh, the discourse on reprehensible imitation within their proper, in their proper lanes, as it were. Now, what I want to do now is go a little bit further uh, than I even did in the first presentation with regard to talking about um, non-Ahlul Kitab folks. And I'm going to draw upon one of the greatest Muslim thinkers um, of modernity, Shah Wali Allah of Delhi, uh, and draw one of his most um, celebrated treatises, hujjat Allah al-Baligha, uh, with a conclusive argument of god right a very bold title I mean, these folks were not afraid <laughs> to, to to uh be very bold and uh, with their their book titles um so i want to draw on this text because it has some very interesting things to say about how um later islam and uh, later muslims for that matter uh, relate to what we call today, or what many Muslims call today the Jah- period of Jahiliya, right? The pre-Islamic period, uh, called the um, Dark Ages, as it were, if you want to draw upon um, medieval European history. Now, this is what he says about existing practice in pre-Islamic Jahili Arabia. Quote, and I will read this one. The prophet had been sent to a people in which a remnant of the rightly guided practice still remained. There wasn't any sense in changing this and altering it. Rather, it was necessary to affirm it since it would be easier for them. And what I appreciate about this uh, uh, comment is even though today Muslims are talking about the, 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 the historical period before the Prophet ﷺ, before Islam came onto the scene in Arabia was jahiliyyah, a form of an ig- period of ignorance, a period of um, uh, irascibility uh, and a, a lack of self-control. Um, nevertheless, shabuli keeping again a, a sober Kind of uh, ob- uh, striving for an, an objective uh, assessment of this past, saying, "Look, yes, there the wasn't Islam, but you know what? There were, in fact, many practices that were, you know, connected to monotheistic practices that were that were good and that uh, Muslims and Islam had no problem with. Uh, in other words, there was an element of sharedness even between um, the, you know, post." Jahiliya and the early Islam, or what would become mature Islam, it wasn't a complete, um, you know, severing or a complete rupture. Um, I'll I'll go on. In other words, put differently, as he conveys in this, the foundations of the five pillars, the five pillars of Islam, right? The Shahada, um, prayer, uh, fasting, charity, uh, the pilgrimage to, to Mecca. In other words he argues they were already in place before Islam, the foundations and their elemental forms. So with regard to tawhid, he says, if you investigate their reports with close scrutiny, you will find that their great and wise men used to believe in the next life, the guardian angels and other things, and that they affirmed the unity of God, Tawheed, in a sense. right? So he's not claiming that they had full-blown Islam. right? That's That doesn't make any sense. But he is saying um, that it wasn't as if they didn't have... Or they didn't inter- entertain any uh, remnants of these ideas either, right? There was a foundation on which uh, a cultural foundation, a, a an intellectual foundation, a social foundation on which uh, Islam could be built. And the that the Prophet ﷺ was able to, to do that. With regard to ritual practice, he says that in um, ritual purity, prayer, charity, fasting, pilgrimage, he speaks of this in... Um, in this uh, section of the hujit Allah al-Baligha, he says that even these practices were observed in some degree by many, maybe not all, but many uh, Jahiliyyah Arabs, and I think that's important to keep in mind because it's it's uh, uh, it's sometimes not portrayed that way. Even with regard to social ethics, and this is kind of came up in uh, some of the comments, even with regard to social ethics with regard to Jahidi Arabs, he writes, and I'm going to uh, cite him. Customary practice among them was the entertainment of the guest and the traveler, supporting the whole family, giving alms to the poor, keeping the bonds of kinship, and helping those struck by the calamities of God. They were praised for these things, and they recognized that these constituted human fulfillment and happiness. Now, these are, um, you know, uh, important observations that Shah Wali Allah is making. Shah Wali Allah is an orthodox Sunni Muslim. He's not some sort of radical, um, you know, antinomian Muslim that I'm drawing on. He's a, an orthodox Muslim, he's revered uh, even today uh, by Muslims in, in South Asia and beyond. So it, it's not as if he's uh, a, a radical, as it were, in the negative sense, uh, a thinker. Um, he's, he's very orthodox uh, and he's you know, a, a Sunni as it were. So I wanna kinda just reassure viewers who don't know who he is and may not be uh, certain of his authority. Uh, he is an authoritative figure um, and he's making these observations based on his reading of the past so this is important these observations I think are important for us to keep in mind because even, not just with the Ahlul Kitab what he's saying that even with the Jahili Arabs before Islam, there was a relationship that that later Muslim believers had, that they shared with, <laughs> across ritual and social cultural practice, and I think this once again this big picture is very important to keep in mind um, simply put when we talk about these relationships between self and other, whether with the al Kitab or even with to uh, to a degree that Jahili Arabs, we speak not only of rupture but also of continuity. There was both continuity between Islam as you know, as we know it, as we came as we uh, as it came to be known, and rupture. There were certain breaks, right? The the practice of burying uh, daughters alive that was a, a, a an abominable. Uh, practice that was common in pre-islamic arabia that um, the prophet sallallahu wasallam objected to uh, strenuously as does, as, uh, you know, as does the quran um, so it's not as if you know it was all the same but It wasn't all different either once again nuance and um, uh, a sober kind of reading is, is important in, uh, here um, okay, any questions on that section?
0: No, nope, no, nope. all clear, all good. Thank you. Super,
1: fantastic. I'm um, going to take a sip of
0: coffee. I like your, uh, your um, they're very good, the images up here.
1: Yeah, I, I try to sort of connect the, the ideas that are in my head with some kind of image to the best uh, of my ability. Um, mm. So that it's as clear as possible. Realizing that, especially for a, a complex topic such as this, um, any, any, any assistance, I think, is, is helpful. So kind of building on this, I want to talk a little bit about the middle way. And now this is something that I think most Muslims have heard, uh, and I think probably non-Muslims as well, about with regard to Islam um, as, as a path of moderation, um, as, a, as a middle path, as not going to one extreme or another. And I want to talk about it in the context of you know, similarity and difference. So one way of thinking about the the subject matter that we're talking about is as opposing vectors or opposing forces of social pressure. So in any social situation, one could go completely opposite and cultivate an orientation of opposition or completely assimilate and um, have an orientation of sameness, of similarity. These in some ways are opposing social pressures. Um, but the Quran uh, says very explicitly That we have made uh, you a community of the middle way Wasata. Uh, I'm drawing here on Muhammad Asad's translation Which I, I liked um, of this particular phrase Better than uh, the others um, uh, But a community of the middle way As a way of defining what Islam is And what it means to be Muslim uh, and I think this principle, which I don't think I emphasized enough in the presentation, ta- first presentation, but I, I would like to in this presentation with regard to Tashabu is very important to keep as sort of that North Star, to keep uh, you know as, as a guiding principle for how to orient ourselves and how to behave um, with regard to uh, non-Muslims, especially in uh, where Muslims are minorities. So another way to kind of think about this is how to think about identity. Identity is not simply comprised of just sameness, nor is it about being completely opposite, doing the opposite and being different. Rather, it's kind of this amalgamation of sameness and opposition, and then moments of contradiction. Um, once again, identity is way more complex than this, but I'm just, this is a a, a a schematic just within the context of the concepts that we're talking about, to think about who we are as people. We're comprised of behaviors and acts that are s- similar to people around us, but that are also, in some instances, different and uh, opposite from those around us. And in some moments, we kind of flip back and forth. Um, we're not necessarily settled. So th- this is where most human beings, right? We're not robots. We're not simply pre-programmed to behave the same way in every situation uh, it just doesn't work that way, right? This is the complexity of human behavior. So this is also important to keep in mind uh, with regard to, to Shabbu similarity, uh, sorry, um, yeah, imitation and, and difference. That how we behave as Muslims, as believers, as simply ordinary human beings are going to be a sort of admixture of these um, behaviors relative to our social environment, relative to... Um, the collectivities that we belong to. Um, it's gonna be some amalgamation of this. And these are the kind of choices that we're gonna to have to make, right? Am I going to dress in a way that, for example, would be very oppositional and very different and so I'll stand out from the crowd. Or am I gonna dress in a way, for example, that I simply blend in? These are individual choices that we make um, with regard to dress. But this also uh, relates to our behavior, the way we talk, um, uh, our character traits. Uh, our sense of humor. There are um, so many features of who we are that will be similar to and different from uh, the people around us, and that makes us ultimately makes us a unique uh, individual. So the the kind of upshot of this, and the kind of the point that I'm you know driving at here, is that when we take all this into consideration, the kind of emphasis on the, the sh- religio-cultural sharedness um, that we see with um, Ahlul Kitab and even non-Ahlul Kitab, the exhortation in the Quran to follow the middle way, and even objective assessment of our identities and how they're formed, there's, there's little evidence to suppose that Muslim identity is intrinsically oppositional. Rather, I'm, I'm arguing that it is not intrinsically oppositional. Um, this may be a controversial point and there may be disagreement on that, and that's fine.
0: But I think... I, I think, I mean, I think that, that is something that could be contested um, sure. in France. Uh, I don't anticipate this now necessarily, but right. I, I, it's certainly perceived by the French state. I'm not saying it is, but it's perceived to be by the French state as oppositional to French Republican values. And, that and that this is not something the Muslims are calling for this oppositional um, stance, but they are being Portrayed as such, uh, and thus exactly. they have to be censored and told to behave differently. So I think that that, that oppositional dynamic is there in some places. I'm not uh-huh. saying everyone.
1: Right, right, and, and 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 so you make you make a good point, right? Um, you know, here you're talking about, you know, what I'm you know emphasizing here is sort of the the kind of normative claims that Islam yeah. is making. Yeah.
0: No, simply. indeed. I'm right. making a slightly different point than one you, right. you. It's, just, exactly. you think it's quite intrinsically oppositional, like, and and I'm making a slightly different point that it is perceived to be, which is slightly different. But nevertheless, right.
1: But what happens, and as you're suggesting, if you know, okay, you, there's, uh, you have your Muslim Muslims' relationship to their their religious tradition. But what happens if you live in a polity, uh, or you live in a society, um, where you are portrayed, um, as the enemy, as yeah. the boogeyman, right? Yeah. Um, as uh as the villain as it were right um what then Uh, and so this is where you get into uh, it becomes more complicated because you're you're entering politics into the into the conversation uh we're talking about representation like media representations literary representations political discourse that now kind of comes into the photo uh into the 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 picture and it, it gets very complex and that's where um you know, is there aren't any easy answers? So here, you know, in, in France, um, you have a situation where uh, the particular form of governance um, is a. I would I would say a very aggressive form of laïcité, a very aggressive form of secularism, right? That's different from the kind of secularism that we find, say, in the UK or in the United States, uh, in a way that uh, has um, alienated Muslims. Um, in a way that uh, you know is is um, I, I, unfortunate, um, and so we now have a, a law, uh, not only banning headscarves and banning prayer in public spaces, uh, but even banning abayas. Uh, so once again, it's ironically, it's very illiberal. Um, it is. I, I, I just and think that uh, the, 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 uh, this this deep kind of contradiction yeah. or aporia within the kind of French state itself that it would kind of uh, enact these kinds of rulings.
0: Yeah, for those who don't know, um, it just broke the news a couple of days ago uh, that France will ban the wearing of the abaya. This is a loose-fitting full dress, full-length dress worn by uh, Muslim women, uh, and this ban applies in in state-run schools. Um, and it's 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 just it was very very obviously targeting muslim women but the the, the secretary of state for education but very obviously had that on his mind and he talked about how schools were emancipatory spaces spaces of emancipation depending on how translate the french where, where uh women didn't dress like that so he he was he was even saying that you know is, is islamic dress is oppressive and retro you know regressive and should be excluded from the emancipatory secular spaces. So he's been very polemical. Um, And, uh, you know, the state and religion, state and religion not supposed to, uh, you know, be in contact, but he was making statements about religions and what they should and shouldn't do and how people should and shouldn't dress. Um, But yeah, it it was a huge outcry against it because what what I find very interesting is uh, unlike before when um, there was a big outcry from feminists in the West over the way Iran um, was enforcing women there to wear the hijab um, and maybe they're right to protest. Uh, that's not really my point. My point is there's been no, as far as I can see, outcry at all, anything from feminists in the West uh, about the French, um, you know, imposition on uh, on women in France telling women what to wear. So it, it seems to be very one side that feminism seems to speak out when in service of a secular understanding of feminism or women's roles or women's dress. But when there's a religious Uh, When religious women are being targeted and told what to wear and not to wear, then feminists, it would seem, due to their absence of saying anything at all, they're just not interested. They're not speaking out. And I think that many people have noted this is an inconsistency. You know, if if the principle is that women should be able to express themselves in the way they dress, then that is the principle. But it's not really applied like that. It only applies when um, in the way that. You know, it has the way I've described with, with Iran, but not with France, and this is seen as an inconsistency in the feminist response. Yeah, him.
1: I think you know the, the 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 distinction and the outcry is important to take note. I, you know, um, I, mean, I can speak most you know authoritatively, or at least um, authoritatively from the United States, where I'm currently, you know, r- reside, and um, certainly the the level of outcry isn't the same as um, it it has been in in. Uh, in Iran, uh, of course, the, the, the situations are are, are different. Um, you know, there there are some feminists that do, uh, you know, that, that do speak up on behalf of of these um, Muslim women who are being told how to dress and 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 and, and do, uh, you know, speak. But uh, their their voices are not as loud or at least amplified um, by the mainstream media as um, yeah. In exactly. For uh,
0: example, the Guardian and so on I have not mentioned. Uh, I'm looking at their coverage. There's been nothing. Whereas before, as you say, the amplified uh, feminist protests against the hijab issue in Iran. Here, there's nothing. Um, so it's not just feminists speaking about it. It's also, as you say, the mainstream media amplifying and projecting those voices so that we can all hear them. And that's not happened. At least not in the last forty-eight hours. That I've noticed at all. And I, I don't suppose you know the news cycle's moved on now. So. I don't think it's suddenly going to erupt. I mean, the moment has passed, but it's, it's very indicative in Western attitudes towards this issue um, that when it comes to Muslims, then you know, second-class citizens who don't really care, even when the principle is the same. At, at yeah, right.
1: yeah, and it's 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 uh, you know, it's it's um, religion plays a role. I think, uh, ethno-racial <laughs> identity also plays a role. The fact that most of uh, um, Muslims in France are. Um, ethno-racially different (laughs) from uh, mainstream uh, French. I think that also uh, plays a role uh, in the way that this um, subject is is treated. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think kind of going back to your comment about um, liberating or emancipating, I think. um, Yeah. Uh, most women. I mean, I think the hypocrisy and, and irony is evident.
0: Um, it is very so, ironic. We're
1: going to to free yeah. them, and I think that. Uh, I mean, it's one thing if you're just going to, you know, call a spade a spade. We're just going to not allow them to wear. It. We don't like it. <laughs> I'd almost rather them say that than said we're, we're, we're going to liberate them. I mean, that's <laughs> because that's that's absolutely ridiculous. But, it also assumes that these women don't have agency. I think that's. One of the things that is very... That's the
0: argument. I noticed in France on my my trips there, that is the argument, that they believe that Muslim women have no agency, that they are purely oppressed by men. That's just a justification, which is quite bizarre. I mean, I've never come across this, really. Uh, It's just not... This is this is like an urban myth that's used by uh, militant secularists to to rob Muslim women of their right to live according to their faith. And and also, I've I've seen some posters uh, that... Uh, the French occupation, of, when during the French occupation of Algeria, that were plastered around the country. Um, there's one particularly often used in, in talks. Um, in, in, it has pictures of women wearing uh, hijab and not, and saying, look, "Look, you're you're very beautiful. Take off your hijab." And this is in Algeria, telling Muslim women in Algeria take off their hijab by the occupying occupying French military, and this was only in the 1950s, which right. is in the lifetime of some people alive today. So. I, what I'm trying to say is that nothing seems to have changed. You still have the same French state governments have changed, but their relationship with Muslim women, whether it be in the colonies, when they occupied Muslim countries, or the Muslims in France, who are French citizens, which many people seem to forget, I've noticed, they're French citizens are still being told uh, to dress uh, in a way that conforms with you know other different values. And it's remarkable. Nothing has changed at all in France, it seems.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it's, it also draws the attention. I mean, one would think, of why does the French state so much so much about whether addresses how long addresses? Why why? What are the stakes involved? Such that you, that they would even care? Yeah. Um, I, I think that brings into for the importance of aesthetics, right? The aesthetics of um, uh, physical appearance and the role that physical appearance plays in mediating. Political authority, um, and that's where you have the nation state today. It's uh, it's the invasive of, invasiveness of the nation state, such that for it to, um, you know, survive as it were, or at least for it's within its own logic, it requires a, a sort of conformity um, in public spaces to a particular aesthetic, to reassure itself that you know we are in control and. Islam or whatever else uh, is not in control, and it almost needs a reassurance uh, to, <laughs> to for itself uh, uh, by through the enactment of these draconian laws that are focusing on the body, right? Um, and and I, you know, it's about these visible displays of Muslimness, these visible displays yeah. of an alternative alternative authority to the French state, what they perceive as an alternative authority to yeah. the French state, to govern the bodies of Muslim women, and the need to kind of manifest the French, the the, the authority of the French state by saying, well, no, you must dress in this way. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's complex, but it, it get it's very political. It's very, very political. Um, and, uh, but it also, I think, brings to, uh, into relief, the importance of how our, everyday presentation, right, our presentation in public life, even the way we dress, mediates various types of political authority or even religious authority. Um, And these battles that we see today within France and Quebec, and, you know, even in the United States, you you have had battles on these sort of sartorial matters, you know, can a, a prisoner grow his beard um, a long beard. That went all the way to, to the Supreme Court, for example, here in the United States. He won. He won that uh, case. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so these kinds of issues are, are not, I mean, even though they get the most uh, airtime in, in France, um, it is also, these kinds of conflicts are also happening here in the United States mm-hmm. with visible forms of uh, Muslimness um, as a, a challenge to the the, um, the uh,
0: the uh,
1: sovereignty or authority of the United States government or secular government more.
0: Uh, more... It's interesting, although, that, although it's true, it's interesting the case in the United Kingdom, as you know, I mean, w- women police officers here in the UK are allowed to wear hijab. But I've seen them. Uh, right. w- women teachers can wear hijabs. Uh, students at universities can wear, you know, uh, uh, men can, can dress in, in traditional garb. It's simply not an issue. Actually, it's right. it's, it's it's not like that. The society collapses and Western civilization, you know, is no more. Britain gets along. I mean, I'm not saying Britain is perfect, of course. There are many other issues, uh, but on this particular issue, I would submit it's not really an issue. And the house hasn't collapsed. We're still here, thank you very much. And we're literally just thirty miles across the English Channel from France, which has a heart attack every time a Muslim wears a Muslim woman wears a hijab. So it shows it's possible to have a more perhaps mature. Uh, responsible attitude, and everything just carries on. You can have a more easygoing, dare I say, Anglo-Saxon attitude towards this, um, which uh, the French, for some reason, don't like to have. But it's their choice, but they're making it hard for their citizens, and that's uh, not good for coexistence. Uh, They go on about diversity and all this, but it's not really diversity when you force people uh, to dress in certain ways, uh, according to the majority of the population. But uh, we, we can do it okay in, in the UK. And so I don't see there's a problem, really.
1: Yeah. And I also think there's, um, you know, local politics happen, the, the landscape of local politics in France with the right and the far right and uh, Macron trying to um, display yes. bona fides to appeal yeah. to maybe certain folks um, over there because the the right and the far right has been growing in France as it has in and,
0: and probably will win the next I think my, my so, is Le Pen win. Yeah, I agree. So I, she, by the way, but just the Le Pen has stated numerous times that she will ban uh, as a matter of government policy the hijab completely from right. France. Yeah. It's not at the moment it's just some schools and certain employees if they're but uh you know she will ban it from France, and, and that is a serious declaration of war, really as far as I'm concerned, a cultural declaration of war against uh, Muslim women and And I think it's quite likely. Many comments that she will become the next president because Macron can't stand again. He's uh, he's reached the limits of his ability to stand for office constitution, and she's the main opposition. She's more popular than him now. So I I think there are very choppy waters ahead in Europe. Very choppy waters
1: yeah and and, and France in, in particular it seems yeah absolutely but well, we're gonna you know obviously yeah, keep on, on. And, right. and see what happens but you know the subject matter here um, with regard to displays of Muslimness um mm. is very much connects to these to these subjects and one of the reasons why I wanted to explore this subject because I saw that you know even 10 15 years ago that these disputes and conflicts over the visible displays of Muslimness is something that you um, is uh, you know, causing uh, problems, and we need to understand what's going on better, so we don't have these kinds of draconian laws being implemented. Because um, clearly, it belies a kind of ignorance um, of Muslims and, and Islam. And I would say it's even a war not only on Muslim, but it, Muslim women. But in some ways, you could argue it's a, it's a war on the Muslim men, whom they perceive will be um, if, if, uh, sort of provoked um, and put in their place, that you don't have the control over the women that you think you do, right? And I think that's also what the state is trying to tell Muslim men, uh, yeah. uh, uh, what they think they're trying to tell Muslim men while erasing female agency in the process, mm-hmm. which is uh, very sad. Um, so anyway, kind of moving, moving on from this idea of oppositional identity into what practices does tashabu include? And so now with that kind of broad, you know, kind of background in mind, now I think we're you know really positioned to kind of to explore the kinds of practices that um, that uh, tashabu right the doctrine of tashabu the teaching of tashabu the discourse of tashabu has included and what I want to focus first is on the hadith corpus so in the book I actually provide many examples and. Uh, give a brief commentary on many of these ahadith and then go into further depth into explaining um, them in more detail. What I have time to do so here is to kind of give broad categories that we find in the hadith uh, traditions. What subject matters do these traditions exhorting Muslims to be different, exhorting Muslims not to imitate, um, whether it's Persians or Romans or Jews or Christians or um, uh, unbelievers, what kinds of practices, ritual, social, cultural, otherwise, do they include? So I've, I've cataloged them here. Um, and for those who are really interested, can, re- can read Arabic, there's you know, books, like 600 pages long that <laughs> go over all the different hadith. So it, it can get really in-depth, but I'm just giving a, a brief idea, a uh, big picture idea uh, what, of what is included. So manners of ablution, prayer, including the call to prayer. Um, one of the fascinating narratives you find, for example, is how the Adhan came into being and and the way it's portrayed uh, in many traditions is that it was the idea of calling to God via a voice was, um, <clears throat> was uh, something that emerged as a way to say, hey, look, we're going to call to prayer in a way that's different from the way Jews and Christians do it.
0: That's right. because Christians do it by traditionally by by uh, the ringing of a bell, a church bell on a Sunday morning, you can still hear that everywhere in America, Britain. The Jews, of course, with the the, the horn, the ram's horn, or something like that. Um, I forget the animal. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the distinctiveness was that the the Muslims. And um, what a beautiful choice to use the human voice, which of course is much much more beautiful potentially. It's certainly certainly
1: beautiful, and um, you know it. It's and it's one of the interesting. The, um, facets of this research for me was to see oh wow to the degree to which islam came into being because or in relation to um you know the existing um religious forms uh, around the prophet muhammad peace be upon him mm. uh, a form of kind of religion making taking place anyway mm. but you know it does include ritual it does include uh, the call to prayer it does include mm. how one should, where How one should kneel during prayer. Mm. Um, Even manners of ablution uh, are mentioned in traditions on, and some traditions on Tashabu, to set apart the way Muslims do these things from the way other religious communities do these things. Manner of fasting. One famous tradition um, relates to Ashura, right, the 10th of Muharram, where the Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, um, uh, saw that. Jewish tribes were fasting during this day. And then, you know, some traditions then say, well, close near the end of his life, he encouraged believers to not only fast during the 10th, as the Jews do, mm-hmm. um, but also to fast on the either the 9th or the 11th. In other words, fast two days instead of one. So mm-hmm. this is a, a common tradition that's given with regard to fasting to show how, on the one hand, yes, Muslims are are fasting like the Jews fast, but their fast is not exactly the same <laughs> as that of uh, the Jews, for example. Uh, similar traditions about when to break the fast, for, for example, hastening to break the fast, um, uh, when the sun sets, uh, likewise eating suhur, right? The pre, um, pre-dawn meal before um, uh, dawn arrives. These um, acts, these habits, these practices uh, in hadith traditions, are portrayed as attempts for Muslims to distinguish their form of fasting from those of other religious traditions. Greeting formulas, um, saying salaam, for example, or how one uses your hand, uh, uh, or how one uses your your body to greet someone, is also found in the hadith traditions. Holidays and festivals, um, which holidays one should celebrate, which holidays one should not celebrate. Eids, for example. So Nouru's, we find Hadith traditions criticizing the observation of the Nowruz festival, which you know has marginal kind of religious connotations, but it's really about setting apart Muslim celebrations from those of others. Uh, funer- funerary rites, um, for example, whether one stands or sits down when a funeral procession passes, uh, sartorial matters, now, this is a big thing, right? Dress and hairstyle, how one wraps a turban, how one grows a beard, how one styles one's hair, um, among uh, other uh, matters. Uh, this is this looms large in the Hadith corpus. Even manners of eating, whether you eat with your right hand or your left hand, uh, for example. So these are all uh, the kinds of practices that are encompassed by the doctrine of tashabbuh. Um, of of uh, imitation uh, in some forms of another, and I give this kind of overview. I didn't give it as a thorough an overview in the first presentation, but I think it would be helpful for people to see uh, what is happening. But so many of these uh, rituals focus on visible forms of Islam, a, embodied forms of Islam, um, and this is uh, kind of part of the role of of these tashabu traditions. So this is in the hadith. Now moving forward. Um, a kind of fast forwarding uh, i'm going to skip over several centuries to ibn Taymiyyah, who wrote a very important work on the subject and he had and he's not the really the first person to to identify this but he articulates it um well he articulates it comprehensively the how do we know when something is constitutes a, a rep- reprehensible fa- form of imitation so yes, one could look to the hadith traditions and say, "Oh, the Prophet said this." The Prophet said that when um, Ashura comes around, you should fast ideally two days instead of one. Um, oh, the, the Prophet ﷺ says in a hadith that when you call to prayer, don't use a shofar. You you know, call to prayer with your voice. Um, so we we can know certain things by the hadith traditions. Mm. But Ibn Taymiyyah goes further and says, that, "Look, he realizes added Muslim ulama." that um uh, cultural practices change with time and place not everything stays the same so how do we deal with the fact that sometimes the practices of a foreign community non-muslim community uh, will change with time Um, and how do we deal with that so what muslim thinkers did is they kind of theorized using islamic terms uh, and what I call a socio-semiotic imaginary. I know that's a mouthful. <laughs> I know that's a mouthful. Um, but I'm gonna challenge your viewers to stay with me and not go to sleep. <laughs> so for someone like you know, for like Ibn Taymiyyah, he theorized that what constitutes tashabu right, reprehensible imitation, is what is defined by a shi'ar. A shi'ar is an Arabic term that we find in the Quran that refers to the distinctive markers or symbols of another community. And so this is what I'm referring to as you know, the, the semiotic dimension. Semiosis is the practice of decoding signs and symbols to find out their values and meanings. That's what the practice of semio- that's what semiosis is. And so Ibn Taymiyyah, when he's theorizing, well, how do we know when an act is reprehensible for a Muslim to uh, imitate or emulate? This, for him, is the kind of the guiding principle. So if, for example, it became in vogue for I'm just saying hypothetical Christians to wear yellow right um, and that became a dif- distinctive marker of the Christian community in Mamluk Damascus excuse me hypothetical then he would say Muslims should stop wearing yellow should not wear yellow because that's what the Christians do. that's a distinctive marker of their community and we shouldn't wear yellow um, that's that's kind of the how he kind of theorizes this So for example uh, with regard to, Celebrating Muslim holidays, he didn't like one of the things that he is particularly sensitive to is Muslims celebrating certain holidays with Christians in Mamluk Damascus. So he does he complains that, uh, and as as does uh, his student shamsuddin Din al-Dahabi, that you know Muslims are participating in uh, Maundy Thursday, what we oh, really a Mandy Thursday, uh, what they would derogatively call al-Khamis al-Hakir, they call despicable. Thursday they're saying. kind of mean but you know anyway that's what they would call it so they don't like the fact that muslims were eating black you know lentils on this day alongside christians they shouldn't be doing this they're saying this is a distinctive meal that christians are eating uh, and then you have muslims going out there and celebrating with them that shouldn't be that shouldn't be happening kind of like if you know ulama today would you know get upset over muslims going to, having a christmas meal for example um, like, well, this is a specific holiday to uh, to Christians. Why are you uh, celebrating with them? So this is, you know, the, the red line that Ibn Taymiyyah draws to say, well, this is what constitutes reprehensible emulation and imitation and what doesn't. And so,
0: because I remember asking a, a, an Islamic scholar in, in the UK uh, um, about uh, um, someone I read about, uh, a Muslim who was invited by his co-worker at work, um, to go to the co-worker's wedding. The right. problem was the wedding. Uh, the, the, the man was getting married to another man uh, uh, in a church, <laughs> a Christian <laughs> wedding in a church between two men. And right. uh, and the question was, you know, c- c- could the Muslim co-worker go to this wedding, this Christian wedding? Um, and uh, ultimately the answer was no. <laughs> <laughs> Well,
1: yeah, I mean, and, and there you go. It's something similar, um, you know, happening here. But I, I will say that this is kind of a, uh, on the one hand, you could argue this seems like a maximalist position, right? right. To kind of be, to expand the realm of tashabu to these practices that the Prophet, sallallahu alaihi wasallam may not have explicitly mentioned. On the other hand, it also limits it, though, because it limits it to only certain practices that stand out as, Um, symbolic and distinctive markers Um, and if they don't then it's not a problem so for example there was one time where uh, a lot of Muslims in the early 20th century got very upset about Muslims wearing brimmed European hats right for them this was a visible distinctive marker of colonized uh, infidel Europeans and Muslims should not wear them today today however um, the, the hat doesn't Tend, at least in many social spaces, uh, doesn't have that uh, symbolic sin- significance or meaning. So you don't find uh, ulema writing fatwas and composing fatwas today. Muslims should not be wearing baseball caps.
0: No, I mean, I mean although you're, you're right. I, I was actually talking to uh, someone uh, early on who lives in Turkey, actually, right. uh, a Muslim living in Turkey. He said, historically and still today, you, what you were ha- hat wear does symbolize things, so you know, oh, of course, it, it used to be the fairs, of course, and then that was banned, and then you had to wear brim rim hats, and then uh, uh but it, it still does signify you know, it, it does identify you as, as a particular kind of person, even in Turkey today, by what you wear on your head. Now, it might not be the case, obviously, in in the West more generally,
1: no, no absolutely. And this is, you know, once again, very context based. Mm-hmm. Um, but for example, when you look at the history of um the the muslim writings of the in the earlier to many mid-20th century on brimmed hats um it was a it was like the the, one of the hot topics during that period um whereas today there are other issues that that muslims are talking about um not about the brimmed hat generally speaking now maybe in turkey it's a specific context because of ataturk and his ban on the brimmed hat so maybe there's a valence there and a meaning there uh that continues until today um but the, the, the kind of writings uh, or at least the sentiment uh, today is very different from the way it was 100 years ago um, mm-hmm. on this subject matter. Mm-hmm. And I think that speaks to the, the at least the this speaks to Ibn Taymiyyah's theory. Right. Because it says that things that are at some point deeply symbolic of another community, some practices can diffuse and spread over time. There was a fatwa, for example, in the 1980s by a scholar, that Muslims shouldn't wear jeans because that is a distinctive um, form of dress of the West. West, the West. I mean, today you go out, you see Muslims wearing jeans
0: everywhere, right? Even, and in Saudi Arabia, when I was there recently in, in Jeddah, uh, at least, uh, and uh, in Riyadh, uh, there were women women wearing jeans. I should women say, wearing jeans. yeah, uh, I mean, many, I they existed, and they were going about <laughs> business without being uh, in any way, you know, molested. Well, it's right. True. And
1: there's thing, you know, we can obviously distinguish between tight genes versus loose genes. But, true. you know, let's, but, you know, once again, this is another practice that at one point may have been perceived as reprehensible and as a yeah, dis- yeah. distinguishing marker, right, of a foreign community, but now has diffused and spread such that it no longer carries that, that same value and meaning. It no longer carries that significance. And so that's where Ibn Taymiyyah's theory and really, I would say he's, he didn't necessarily coin it, but the, the theory that Muslim ulama developed around this issue is very dynamic, right? And as an historian, it's very fascinating and very interesting because it shows that, yes, yeah, certain things stay the same, right? Um, but certain things also change with time and place, and which is why you need uh, thinkers to think these things through to figure figure out what <laughs> what is good imitation and what is what constitutes bad imitation, uh, because simply cutting and pasting from the past will will um, not always lead to good uh, decisions or good rulings. So this is a a theory that I wanted to bring in to to the fore um, because it helped serve as a guiding principle for many ulema to determine what constitutes reprehensible imitation in a given time and place and what uh, does not. Um, So one thing that you know, came through in this first presentation and I think has come through in this presentation is why does the Islamic discourse of reprehensible imitation of the shabu emphasize the distinctiveness of Muslim physical appearance? Uh, And this is something that we find throughout Islamic history. We find this emphasis in the hadith traditions. We find this emphasis in um, the treatises that um, and fatawa that Muslim ulama and fuqaha would write later on. Um, and that has to do with, number one, the linguistic import of the term tashagba, which emphasizes uh, it, it kind of has an uh, import of uh, physical appearance. Um, and what I, you know, and there, there are multiple reasons. One of the, I mean, one of the explanations that I, that I argue is that being Muslims cannot be reduced exclusively to a private, interior, abstract, disembodied experience. It encompasses a public, exterior, material, and embodied dimension as well. And I'm simply citing I'm citing myself <laughs> from from my book, and this is uh, one explanation that I give. It's not the only. It doesn't. It's not the only explanation, but I think it helps to explain. It certainly I think goes f- far to helping to explain why physical appearance uh, is an enduring uh, is, um, a part of this is a part of this discourse, as a part of this doctrine.
0: Okay. Um, can, I, can I just comment on that? It's a very, a, very interesting. Being a Muslim cannot be reduced exclusively to a private interior, abstract, and disembodied experience, as has, however, I would argue, Christian uh, uh, living in society is now seen as a purely interior uh, relationship with, with with God or with Jesus. Um, your second part about it does encompass the public exterior. Embodied dimension as well. I think that's been rejected now in Christianity, and I actually tweeted about this. Uh, if I may refer my own tweet <laughs> um, uh, sure. j- just now, where I actually said Christians have forgotten that women must wear the hijab too. Now this is mm-hmm. deliberately clickbaity, but it's, it's meant to convey a serious point. Uh, One Corinthians eleven, the first letter of Corinthians of Paul, this is actually in the Bible, uh, says, "Any woman who prays or prophesies without a head un- with her head unveiled." disgraces her head um she, and he goes on i won't get the argument because he develops why this should be the case she should wear the veil they but he does say actually uh, if a woman does uh, if a woman will not veil herself then she should cut off her hair because it's 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 like being a prostitute you you, you are it's a dishonorable shameful condition for paul now you may say we may say it's all culturally relative but that's the point this this, this uh, balance between the, the interior and exterior, between the uh, the private and the public that you have mentioned there, is maintained in the Islamic conception of being a person uh, in the way they live and behave, but it's been lost in other religions. And uh, that, that's a shame. I'm not saying this is a triumphalist of Islam over Christianity. I'm just saying it's been lost in Christianity, but it, it has been maintained in Islam, thank goodness. making. Yeah,
1: and and this is something that, you know, academics are uh, also draw attention to in part because modernity, Western modernity itself, and the way that religion has been configured, um, and what good faith is supposed to be like within a secular state, it's supposed to be private and interior so that the state then can, uh, you know, as it were, have more control over over public life and the, the emergence of religious pluralism, Uh, And certain theories of religious pluralism within democratic states um, have, they've argued that keeping religion private allows for the religiously plural state to be functioning and uh, relatively conflict free. The problem, of course, is that um, this is one of the reasons why um, I think there is difficulty in some and many Secular states, whether it be France Whether it be China um, um, you know, Parts of the United States To accommodate Muslims Is because there is not Always an agreement on what this public exactly. Manifestation of religion Should look like uh, And the reality is when you go back to the early Period of Islam um, And you look at these hadith traditions On tashabbu It very much indicates to us that Constructing a public image of Islam um, uh, that was very much embodied by Muslims was an important dimension of religion making, and you know I, I do in, in the book connect it to broader kind of political um, uh, political developments, uh, of empire, etc. Uh, but uh, but today in you know whether it be in the United States or in the United Kingdom or in France or in China. Um, You know, this is very much uh, a hot button issue. How does one physically embody their faith in public life? Uh, And, you know, whether no matter what one comes up with in terms of how Muslims should behave today, historically, as an historical fact, (laughs) uh, and I say this as an historian, uh, this helps to explain why many of these Tashabu traditions really focus on um, uh, physical appearance um, in the form of physical acts uh, but also something like the Adhan in creating a public space and cl- it's, uh, in this, it constructs an Islamic public just actually yesterday or maybe the day before New York gave permission for, Muslim, uh, for mosques yeah. on Fridays uh, and during Ramadan to mm. call uh, publicly call the Adhan uh, via loudspeakers, kind of like Minnesota, I think what Minneapolis did. So, you know, many Muslims were happy about this, although some Muslims were upset because the mayor um, permitted this uh, three or four days after coming back from Israel. <laughs> so, some people yeah. thought, it, thought it was a political move, as a, as a calculation, calculative move to appease oh, Muslims. <laughs> um, anyway, it's a, it's a way of you know, this, you know, for many Muslims are happy about this because this allows Islam to be um, heard in the public in a way that it was not before, whereas Islam had to be silenced to pacify a secular state. And now New York is saying, well, you know, we're going to make these accommodations uh, for you guys. But anyway, it, it brings into, uh, into relief these ongoing uh, negotiations about how religions um, religious communities may publicly manifest their, their faith. And not all states are the same, as we see, for example, in China, um, what they're doing to mosques yeah. and requiring that they conform to certain new aesthetic norms um, that are, you know, chi- distinctively Chinese, as opposed to the way they looked in the past. It's it's about the state, um, and I would say, as relative insecurity of the state to feel the need to project its power so that it's publicly visible in this way.
0: Okay although yeah a good point i was at Cambridge in cambridge uh, last week and uh, i visited cambridge central mosque this is one that's been um, It's uh, a beautiful it's mosque it's incredible mosque you know abdul hakim murad who you've already mentioned right. is, is the, the the mind behind this and uh, it's been absolutely extraordinary and and even though it is definitely a mosque um it's it's not um identifiably mosque in the way that you expect to see it say in turkey or or in saudi arabia it's very much uh, a beautiful ingenious blend of uh english or uh, british architecture w- with an islamic flavor and it works very beautifully both inside and outside and i think that is a really good way forward actually rather than having in inverted commas alien architectural forms just planted into an existing culture and saying hey it's just us it is possible to uh find creative solutions i think which uh, where everyone feels that they can identify with the the building rather than just the people who use it i mean
1: yeah I think it's a fantastic example and we're gonna actually uh, inshallah loop back this um, point that you make towards the end of the presentation when we talked about Muslims living in the West. I think it's a great point sort of in the conclusion of, of my book I, I'm also advocating from for something along those lines. so I look forward to kind of coming back to this to that point. Um, the other another big reason and once again the, the slide is a bit distorted, but another big reason why, Physical appearance has, has historically mattered to the subject of Tashabu, is the uh, sort of ongoing, or at least um, not ongoing, but the insight that Muslim ulama had, had from and Muslim Muslims had, beginning from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that there's an, there's an intimate relation between the vahir and the batin, right? Yeah. The outward uh, physical embodiment of one's faith and the internal cultivation of the self that they're intimately related it's very hard to kind of sever one could sever the two but generally speaking they they go and in, in lockstep there's an interesting tradition attributed attributed to ibn mas'ud um, La yushbihu zhi zhi al-qloob, that the Physical, people's physical appearances do not align until their hearts uh, are aligned, which I think is a very interesting tradition attributed to Ibn Mas'ud. In other words, people's physical appearances um, come to be similar when their, uh, their affections for one another um, are, are there. Uh, and so sometimes you see people that are friends and they, they look the same, they dress the same, <laughs> or at least similarly, um, and it, it is a manifestation of the affection they have for one another. But Ibn Mas'ud here, if, if we can attribute this cita- uh, quote to him, is drawing a connection between the dahir and the ba'atan. And this is something that the mutasawifun, uh, Sufis in particular, uh, speak about. But even beyond you know, uh, Sufi discourses, um, we find uh, even among Islamic uh, Muslim fuqaha, they recognize this insight, um, and this is something that is uh, an ontological observation made by uh, Muslim spiritual masters and I think this is another reason why um, these uh, thinkers emphasize the importance of having a distinctive physical appearance because it would signal a distinctive Muslim character as as well now this isn 't always the case; you do have you know situations where there's a rupture between the dhahir and the batin, and someone you may, may not, ma- be manifestly or, um, uh, manifestly or evidently Muslim outwardly, but interior-wise or internally, they have a very close relationship to Allah and they're very devout. This is certainly true, and this certainly happens. But generally speaking, one of the reasons why I think physical appearance um, has been emphasized in the Tashtabu literature is that ulama again and again emphasize this interrelationship between the Wahir and the batin. Any, any comments or questions about this Paul?
0: no not at all great thank you
1: so those are two big reasons why I think physical appearance has been emphasized in the Tushabu discourse and I wanted to explain this because I think some folks you know didn't understand uh, and I also want to emphasize that part of the reason why we have this sort of at least some of us get confused when we um with this emphasis on physical appearance is because we've also become so modern, uh, that, you know, faith is supposed to be interior and we think that that's really what matters. And look, no one's saying that, that, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, ultimately what he'll scan our hearts, right. In a way that no one else, no other being can, and he will determine, you know, where we belong in in the world to come. Obviously this is, I mean, the Quran even emphasizes this, uh, ultimately what's really important, um, is is what is in our hearts that said in this kind of islamic anthropology and the anthropology i think uh, of other religious traditions there is this understanding that what we do physically in the outward world does actually have an impact and does shape uh, our interior okay so what are some rulings on tashabu? and this is something that i didn't have a chance to talk about during the first in the first presentation that i want to discuss a bit uh, this, by the way, is the, uh, uh Abu Sood, one of the famous muftis of the Ottoman Empire, uh, legislating and giving fatawa. I love his big, huge turban.
0: Oh, some of those turbans are so big, I was wondering how they managed to keep their head straight. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I, I know. The size of a huge tire. Um, I, know. I think
1: that uh, one, uh, during one of your, uh, po- I guess, podcasts or one of your interviews, you, you must wear a, a huge turban, Paul. I really okay. um, I re- <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll it doing a, a podcast on Ottoman history. Oh, indeed. Maybe for that, yeah. Anyway, now here's a, a statement attributed to Imam Shafi'i. Um, we do not prohibit imitation to shabu of them, Jews and Christians, in all situations. We eat like they eat. And I sort of foreground this here right off the bat um, to show uh, how in a a figure that's widely revered in the Islamic, yeah. the Islamic tradition uh, himself makes a statement about this idea of imitation. You know, like, look, mm. um, not everything is prohibited. Uh, yeah. So even, even if Imam Shafi'i didn't make the statement, even if this attribution is, is incorrect, um, which sometimes it can be when, when you look at the, you know, look at the literature, the statement itself is true. The statement itself is true. This because the ulama did not prohibit imitation and everything. They just didn't because of all the things I've spoken about before. Islam is a middle path, the religio-cultural sharedness with uh, Jews, Christians, and even pre-Islamic Arabia, uh, the idea of the Ahlul Kitab as the proximate other versus the distant other. Um, you know, for all these reasons I've spoken about, uh, ulama did not prohibit tashabu in everything. Um, did it, it wasn't a call for opposition and rejection in every sphere of life. If that were the case, um, Muslims and Jews would not have been permitted to live in the, the caliphate, yet they did right um, so just to, I want to this is for the, the general viewer to keep it, the big picture in mind to kind of even kind of go beyond this and kind of uh, when you look at for example, the discourses of ulama on the subject, Ibn Taymiyyah for example argues that the reality is Tashabu can fall in any one of five primary Islamic rulings illicit haram, detested Makru, illicit mubah Recommended mustahab, obligatory, farud, or wajib. So he says, like, look, even when you see, uh, it's not as if every instance of tashabu is haram. It could be makruh, detested. It could be simply permitted. It could be, in fact, recommended to emulate or imitate um, uh, for an act of tashabu to take place, or even follow, depending on the context or situation. So Ibn Taymiyyah, despite his, I would argue, maximalist position on the subject of tashabu, still was able to have a nuanced perspective a uh, and and see that there were a variety of Islamic rulings that could apply depending on the context. It's not just black and white. And I, th- I, I want to once again want to emphasize this because uh, you know, in the com- some of the comments and then some my conversations with ordinary Muslim believers, like no, tashab was prohibited in everything. You can't imitate them in any way, and and, and in terms of their ethics, and, and that just isn't true. That's just it's just a false statement. <laughs> so if if you, you don't believe me, then you know, hopefully you'll believe Imantamia. <laughs> so I want to emphasize this: it depends on the particular practice that we're talking about. Even the, in the case of the beard, for example, um, you know we have. Uh, hadith traditions that exhort Muslim men to dye the beard, uh, even though it's given in an explicit command form, like the, the the articulation in the Arabic is a command of the Prophet. That command, uh, for most ulama, is not a uh, an obligation. Maybe it's a, it's merely at most a recommendation. So that's why it's. Optional, Even though the, the the hadith takes the form of a command And one would at the face value of the hadith Think that the prophet is making um, uh, You know, uh, uh, affecting a requirement That's not how Muslim fuqaha interpreted the hadith And that's why it's complex That's why reading hadith and developing uh, Or at least ded- deducting fiqh rulings Is just not a simple matter Some hadiths are not even acted upon so one has to kind of think through things, uh, you know, speak with folks that are knowledgeable on these issues before making blanket statements uh, that are uninformed. Case study. Case study. I want to give one case study. Reading from a mushaf during prayer. So if anyone's gone to tarawih prayer, it's not uncommon to find uh, people in the sahf in the line having a cell phone. Uh, during Taraweeh prayer, which could be as long as twenty rakat or eight rakat, but can last hour, two hours, three hours, depending on where you go. And to, in order to pay attention, some or some uh, Muslims will have a cell phone um, with the surah that the imam is reading from in order to pay attention and focus on.
0: Could you just define what Mushaf is for those? Oh, sorry. A, a
1: Mushaf, excuse me. A Mushaf is an Arabic term referring to the uh, physical Quranic codex.
0: That one, halls, uh, one it, hall. So it, in I'm, Arabic, and it's not not with commentaries and all that. It's just just the text, isn't it, of the Arabic text? It, it, it could have,
1: it, it might have, you know, commentary in it, of course. But it, we're really talking about, um, you know, the, the 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 Quranic text, the six hundred or so pages in the printed form, um, right. God's words, right? God's words. That's really what we're talking about. So yeah, the yeah, physical yeah. copy uh, is referred to as a mushaf, um, in technical Arabic terminology. Um, so is it okay to hold a mushaf during prayer, right? In the Hanafi school, the general answer is no. So for Imam Abu Hanifa, it's a hard no, why? It in, for him, it invalidates prayer. So a strict Hanafi, will, you'll never see a strict Hanafi holding <laughs> a mushaf, a physical Quran during prayer uh, because according to Imam Abu Hanifa, excessive physical movement uh, is prohibited as is having external inspiration um, for reciting the Quran during prayer. Rather, when one is in prayer, uh, the recitation should come from within Whatever the person knows of the Quran It should not be externally inspired And this is Imam Abu Hanifa's position But his companions, the Sahiban Imam Muhammad and Abu Yusuf were also very well respected scholars And mujtahid imams within the Hanafi school Had a different opinion
0: yeah.
1: they didn't. Ha- it wasn't a hard no It's better if you don't I detested Makru Why? their rationale uh, was that it's tashabbuh of the ahlul kitab to hold a mushaf during prayer is uh, a form of imitating certain ahlul kitab maybe they're referring to certain rabbinic jews um, that they were uh, you know, uh, within their particular time and place um, but uh, what's important to keep in mind here is that that legal rationale the illa that's given was not strong enough for them to prohibit the act outright. And I'm speaking of Imam Muhammad and Abu Yusuf here. Rather, it was simply strong enough to say it's better if you don't. In other words, for them, if, you, if, a, uh, if a Muslim did hold a mushaf during prayer, it would not invalidate it. It would simply be something that it's better if they didn't do. Now, in the, moving from the, so you see this internal diversity within the Hanafi school itself. Uh, although the dominant position with the Hanafi school today is the position of Imam Abu Hanifa, that it's a hard no. Um, still, it's, I, I, I show this to show or to um, show the viewer, or I talk about this uh, to show the viewer that it's such a subjective enterprise. Um, it's not always evident what constitutes tashabbu, uh, and it's not even evident what the ruling should be. Um, in the Shafi school, it's a different view. Imam Shafi, no problem, it's permissible, because the tashabu is unintended, even if it is tashabu, it's unintended, and it really has no legal force in this case. So even if it can be shown that this is tashabbu, uh, a kind of uh, imitation of the other, for Imam Shafi, um, it nonetheless is not intended, and therefore uh, is has no legal force in determining the ruling on whether it, uh, it's okay or not to hold a mushaf during prayer. So a follower of the Shafi'i school, the imam of the uh, following of the Shafi'i school can hold a mushaf during prayer and um, have a clear conscience and not worry that he or she, for that matter, in the case of a follower, is um, committing a sin. So this is you have this diversity over, you know, whether an act is tashabu or not, and you have this disagreement on whether it constitutes Um, or what the Islamic ruling should be. And so this is the kind of uh, nuance and complexity that exists on the subject, and that we simply have to be aware of. It's just not a simple black and white matter. And this is just one case study uh, I I chose to help show, or at least to show the viewers how this operates in the um, pre-modern Islamic tradition. Any questions or comments about this, Paul?
0: No, not really. It's just that I mean, there are things that are prohibited for men to do, like wearing wearing silk or gold jewelry. We, we, we can't just copy Christians and wear, you know, a silk shirt, a nice silk shirt from the shop, or uh, a gold ring. Uh, that simply, my understanding is, correct me if I'm wrong, it's simply prohibited. Um, so imitation there will be prohibited. So there's, I don't think there's any ambiguity there, but. Uh, but there are is ambiguity on other issues, as, as you as you obviously have just illustrated. Would that be? Yeah, no, that's,
1: that's, a, that's a good point. That's a good point. There are some issues. I mean, I will say there is ambiguity about the silk issue, but because there there that's is among the on certain amounts of silk that are, that are permitted, but we won't go there to kind of you know go too far afield. Um, but you know, generally speaking, and then you also get into the percentage of silk—is it fifty percent or less than fifty percent? So uh, you know these. If I was,
0: way, if I was to say, oh, all that, that my 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 friend uh, Mr. Christian's got a nice gold ring on his finger," <laughs> i wear one as well. As a Muslim, um, that's pretty clear-cut, isn't it? What, what... Yeah, the, the
1: the gold ring issue. we would say that that is not merely an inter that is not merely an issue pertaining to interfaith relations. That's also about gender, right? That's a, that's a, that's a gender issue, right? Because Muslim women,
0: yeah.
1: I mean, yeah. are permitted. Yeah. To wear uh, gold
0: as, as a man though i mean yeah. uh, so, so you get
1: into the gender tashabu here the gender yeah. tashabu mm. kind of intersecting with the um mm. uh, interfaith tashabu which you know it gets then it gets really interesting when you get these intersections mm. um uh, but yeah in that particular case you're not going to find many ulema uh, or really any ulema that i can think of that would say yeah. it's okay for a man to wear um a a gold at least uh, of a very high percentage gold uh, ring now the question becomes you know if, if it's a very low percentage right this is getting into um, certain legal principles within certain schools uh, what con- what what is gold if something is less than fifty percent gold is it gold? Mm-hmm. So you might get into some of these issues among some fuqaha about these matters um, what is the identity of the
0: but, but is that not a danger then getting into kind of Jesuistical casuistry, as the Christians used to call it? I remember the Catholic, this, you had this phrase, Jesuistical, I, Jesuit casuistry. In other words, kind of uh, obscure arguments that kind of get away from the clarity of, of, of the point. Um, is it not the okay? case? So, for example, I could say, uh, yeah. what one could say, um, well, uh, Muslims shouldn't drink wine. And then the, the, the casuist may come back and say, ah, oh, well, there's always, it's not always strictly true because you can. Drink non alcoholic wine if there was such a thing, which is, or non alcoholic <laughs> beer, which there is such a thing. I can mean, <laughs> sit in the pub and have my non alcoholic beer as a Muslim, you know. I, I mean, but you say, ah, oh, but it's not alcohol, so but I, I know these are possibly gray areas, but what I'm trying to say is that there is nevertheless a clear prohibition on alcoholic wine and beer, just as there is a prohibition on having a gold ring. Even though, in some exceptional circumstances, you can think, you know, "Oh well, if the ring has 0.1% gold in it," I mean, I'm not—I have no idea. Maybe then it's permissible. Maybe it's not. I have no idea. I'm not—I'm not issuing a review here. But it's not a danger here that we lose the clarity of the of the of the, the ruling in in the obscurity of some exceptional cases. They tend to obscure the 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 more transparent clarity of the main point that Muslims shouldn't be drinking beer or wearing men shouldn't be wearing gold rings
1: yeah i mean you you this is you know getting into um yeah i the, the reality though is a lot of fiqh um is is you know it, it goes into this level of detail on a lot of issues and some legal historians do argue that islam uh islamic law is heavily casuistic um um. But isn't
0: this because if I'm going to push back, isn't this because these are lawyers we're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you, you yeah, make a I a mean, point about it's because of <laughs> law, aren't they? I mean, thick is to do with law. And that, what do lawyers do? I mean, they delight in exceptions. Hard <laughs> and, and oh, well, what in this extraordinary circumstance? And yeah, all this is real. That's what lawyers do. They delight in exceptions. Right. But the ordinary man and woman is not a lawyer. And, and they're not going to be guided by that kind of logic anyway, that kind of sophisticated logic that you. You know they're going to be guarded by the simple. Now, I'm not saying therefore we should all be simple simpletons, but is there not a danger here that the complexity and the obscurity of the legal mind kind of overshadows the clarity of the prohibition?
1: Yeah, and I think you're you're highlighting a, a you know a more general um, kind of uh, I think dilemma within legal uh, you know. Legal traditions, Islam, you know, uh, Judaism and Islam stand out among yeah. religious traditions with a very sophisticated legal culture. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think it's um, it's challenging for the ordinary believer. That's why I think for ordinary believers today, it, it it is challenging. It's not easy to be to be Muslim if one really wants to go in depth into these subjects. Um, you know, ulama would say, well. In these contexts, it might be advisable to then go to a specialist and ask for guidance. Another guiding principle one could, and I'm speaking now here more broadly, is the Prophet وسلم, uh, you know encouraged ordinary believers to avoid what is doubtful as a guiding principle. Right? Exactly. So one could say, hey, look, maybe there are certain situations or even ulama or fuqaha that may permit um, non-alcoholic beer, right? Certain situations at a, at a certain threshold or you know, wearing silk ties that up to a certain level. But as an ordinary believer, I'm just not going to worry. I don't, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to get into it. So that is, I, I think, a, a helpful, for the ordinary believer, for the, for the everyday viewer that's watching this and maybe overwhelmed by some of the legal terminology, mm-hmm. that's uh, a way, that's one way forward. However, that can also become overwhelming. If one becomes so besieged with doubts on every single issue, mm. then that can also be paralyzing. Mm. So, um, unfortunately, it, it can be a guiding principle in some situations, and yeah. I would say it certainly sh- should. Um, but there are also situations, maybe, um, that do require consulting with those who are. Well, yeah, you know, I'm not. I'm not actually, denying.
0: I'm just. I'm just, it's just a question yeah. of how is this is framed, really, for the average right. person like myself. If if we're always if even obvious things are framed as complicated things that lawyers argue about, then the tendency is, uh, how can we take that seriously? You know. Yeah, and, and look, one but, of the wisdoms... Uh, uh, the example would be, for example, about not eating pork. Right. So we're not supposed to eat pork. Ah, but the Quran says in, in, in extremists, extreme situations, blah, 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 and of course it says that, and that's right. Right. But we don't go around thinking, well, it's it's sometimes okay to eat pork, isn't it? We don't think like that. We think, no, it's haram.
1: <laughs> right. Right.
0: We're not ordinarily in, in a starvation situation in the desert but we're, 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 this is a very extreme circumstances where their life and death. Then it becomes permissible. I mean, I'm assuming this is correct. Then it becomes permissible to eat pork. Yes, actually. <laughs> but that's not how we live our lives normally at all. And we don't think like that. We think, no, pork is haram. I'm not going to buy that bacon. I'm not going to buy that pork chop whatever <laughs> it is called. Um, does that, do you know what I mean in terms of how we frame this in our lives? Yeah,
1: no, a- absolutely. You're going to have the, the default situation. And look, one of the reasons, you know, why there's this level of um, detail and, you know, Imam Abu Hanifa, for example, I mentioned, um, let me see if I can go back, you know, these five different categories, uh, you know, Imam Abu Hanif the Hanafi School is famous because it has seven categories. <laughs> so they, wow. go, they go even, you know, further, right, um, to the level of nuance. And one of, the, you know, one of the reasons why they, you know, did so is, because uh, life is also complex and sure. they also want to have, they're like, okay, look, if God is going to tell us something, we don't also want to overstep our bounds. You know, this is this is the, the thing. If, if God and the prophet said certain things are prohibited, hey, we're, those are prohibited. But they were also wary of overstepping their bounds. And this is where they were, um, yeah, I, I think that also helps to explain why they went into the level of they thought it was important to go into the level of detail that they, that they did that they, on the one hand, didn't want to overstep their bounds and make things prohibited that may not in reality be prohibited. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And likewise, and and the flip side, um, they may wanted to have um, uh, prohibited certain things that they believe that God would have prohibited in light of certain existing principles. So it It's them trying to do their job, but you're right. It, what is if if you go to a barber and they tell you that you need you know you ask if you need your haircut, they're gonna tell you you need your haircut. So that is kind of built into the the the, the, the function of being a, a faqee. Um And uh, yeah, I, I, it's you, you bring up an important issue. Uh, you know someone like myself who's inclined to these sorts of things, I love it. I mean, but you know, but I realize that for many, uh, folks out there, it can be overwhelming and can even be a turnoff, right? It, it, because it becomes um, burdensome to have to think through every single issue and such a sophisticated level of detail. So that's why the the the, the one comment I'll make as the, the couple of guiding principles I'll say: avoid what is doubtful as long as it's not overwhelming. Uh, and then, um, uh, if if in doubt, if you're confused, go to someone whom you trust. Uh, yeah. Yeah, for yeah. advice and for guidance that's but right. you're right it, it, it is a pitfall it is a potential pitfall to get into so such a level of detail that you lose you lose the you know um, forest for the trees right or whatever it is yeah you lose the forest for the trees and this is always a pitfall this is always a pitfall in these in these matters um and uh you know that's where Allah's that's where guidance comes right that's why we say every single prayer because ultimately we need God's guidance to get us out of those moments of confusion and give us clarity, uh, and and that's why we even intellectuals, even fuqaha, uh, need guidance. They need guidance so they don't lose themselves as many have in the past. So thank you, Paul. That was a great point. Now to sort of the you know uh, you know the Muslims living in the West, which I know is a subject that um, both of us are excited to speak about, and I think we've already touched upon many of these issues, but um, you know, I want to uh, think about what, how can Muslims today begin to think about the subject of Tashabu, right? Um, you know, so I pose this question at the end of the, um, excuse me, at the end of uh, the uh, presentation last time, but I didn't really try to answer it. I kind of just left it there in an implication. I think some people were maybe confused. So I want to try to (laughs) address this. And I think I already have to some degree a little more explicitly. Does being authentically Muslim require opposing mainstream American or British or some other uh, culture? Um, I mean, the short answer is not necessarily. Uh, And I want to actually bring once again, Ibn Taymiyyah, who wrote this statement, who composed this statement all the way back in the uh, early 14th century. And I think this level of nuance is, is helpful for Muslims, especially Muslims living in Western countries today. So I'm going to just simply cite what he stated and obviously a uh, translation from the Arabic. Quote, if a Muslim resides in non-Muslim lands, and he used the term dar he is not obligated to appear different from his people, i.e. non-Muslims, in their outward conduct due to the potential harm that may befall him or her. In fact, it may be commendable or even binding upon a Muslim to participate occasionally with non-Muslims in their public affairs if it fulfills a religious objective, i.e. maslaha diniyah. Um, if it becomes clear that the correct religious policy with respect to similarity and difference with regard to tushabbu changes with time and place, then the truth of these hadith traditions does so as well. That's a very profound statement that he's making, right? Once again, you see nuance, even though you know, we can argue that Ibn Timmy had a maximalist position with regard to not imitating non-Muslims. He still, in the 14th century, early 14th century, despite the Mongol menace that was coming in and the sort of sus- the suspicion he had towards Christians living in um, Muslim-majority countries, had the, the, the vision and foresight to say, look, there are some situations where you just got to you got to think differently about this issue. Um, it's just not a simple, you know, prohibition. It may yeah. be in fact important for Muslims living in non-Muslim majority contexts. And this is a time um, to emulate and assimilate, uh, into the situations or the societies that they're living in, of course, holding onto their Islam, maybe in certain situations, hiding their Islam, if it, means if it uh, threaten threat to their life or death but um you know he in other words there's a subjective uh sub- subjective dimension here uh based on maslaha public interest the religious what is an um a valid rel- religious objective uh depending on the situation because he himself knows that he can't think of every single situation that a muslim is going to face um in, in the world, even in his time, uh, and so he has to give this space to Muslims to figure things out uh, and make informed decisions based on the context in which they they live. And I and I cite this to reassure Muslims today living in the West uh, that you know um, Tashabu doesn't necessarily require opposition uh, to their surroundings in every sphere of life. Um, they can be strategically selective based on the maslaha that they see. So for me living here in the United States, I can only broadly talk about what it means to be French and not knowing what it's like to live in France as a Muslim, um, you know, here for example, is some kind of guidelines for how French Muslims can attempt to function within this difficult space as as, as in China or in India, uh, you know, they, they have to kind of be strategic um, and, and, and make decisions about what it means to assimilate and what it means to emulate. It's not a one-size-fits-all solution, one-size-fits-all template that's going to work. What works for me here in the United States in Northern New Jersey may not work at all for uh, someone living in uh, the Banli, and in Paris. It just, it may not. And I want to sh- just give one example of a minimalist approach to shabu today, of a, a modern scholar, Sheikh Abdullah bin bayah who is a mentor to Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, uh, and certainly fits into this tra- you know Sunni traditionalist uh, camp, as it were. Uh, I just want to give. I mean, there, once again, there are many different fatawa out there, but I want to just select his to give you an idea of what is out there. um And this was recently uh, publicized on Twitter. I even sort of tweet retweeted it just to say, "Hey, look, this is what Sheikh bin is Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayah is saying about this issue." So he, in this short two-minute, I guess, fatwa, you can call it, or response to a question about tashabu, says there's two kinds of resemblance. There's permissible resemblance, mushabaha, and reprehensible imitation, tashabu. For him, most practices fall under permissible resemblance. He uh, constrains or limits and... uh, what uh, reprehensible imitation or prohibited imitation to acts that are, number one, intentional and to acts that apply to dini matters, he uses the quote dini in Arabic uh, on purpose, religious matters alone Now this is what I would say is a minimalist uh, definition of tashab Um, Remember Ibn Taymiyyah, we're talking about dress, you are talking about signs and symbols of a public community uh, Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayah In his interpretation of this subject And his application today And I want to emphasize He's speaking to Muslims today uh, Believes that this should be The approach to Tashabu Now, not all Fuqaha will agree with him And not all ordinary Muslims Are going to agree with him But I want to just highlight uh, This kind of minimalist approach to Tashabu To see that it's out there And it's uh, with a legit um, faqih of the Islamic tradition Mm-hmm. Abdul Hakim Murad On Muslims Living in Europe This is also from Traveling um, mm. Traveling home just, okay. and he, has, he has a chapter On the people of denial Which you may recall the Ahlul Kitab, Kitab As opposed to Kitab uh, He says The other's worth work Is intrinsic Regard, Remember the terminology okay. Self and other So the other With a capital O The non-Muslim other Whether that non-Muslim other Is the Ahlul Kitab A Jew or a Christian Or whether the other is an atheist and he's actually in particular speaking to atheists um the worth is intrinsic and quote what is decently european and recognizably moral is also islamically interesting end quote so once again he's this is a position of accommodation it certainly is not a position of op- opposition that he's endorsing um although although he does also say quote and this relates and, and we're coming back to your uh, comment about the um mosque right the cambridge central mosque quote Mm. we need to reduce the superficial outward signs that suggest uh that we and he's talking to to um non-muslims living in in britain that we are exiles so he takes a kind of a, a kind of a more forceful position that muslims living in great britain and other parts of the west need to consciously and intentionally kind of tone down the expressions of foreignness um so once again this is a kind of a more minimalist position that he's advocating about um you know expressing kind of the difference that we talked about earlier about publicly manifesting one's difference uh he's saying we need to kind of tone it down especially the forms of difference that that convey foreignness and alienation i would you know in, in, in 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 my book just to kind of know i I criticize this position a a bit Uh, i'm not as um you know i argue that you know and sort of a a through line throughout the book that the the forms of difference that um muslims may manifest do not necessarily have to be perceived as um, foreign like not all forms of muslim difference denote some kind of foreignness uh and, and, and I argue that it's, um, and I think in part because of research that I did among black American Muslims living in the United States and speaking with them, um, that I became much more um, attuned to the importance of letting muslims figure out how they want to embody their islam uh and as, especially for black american muslims of a history of slavery and segregation for many of them that i that i spoke with about this issue of imitation and, and difference, it was very important to be ve- very visibly different um uh in a way that was blatant in a way that was obvious uh that was different from many uh, of the uh, immigrant Muslims that I've spoken to.
0: Why was it important for them to a- a- accentuate the difference? Well,
1: um, it's, it's you know, for, for, for many of them, it has to do with the history of, of slavery and segregation, uh, also the confusion around, um, you know, what is correct Islam. Remember, for, for many of them who follow uh, whose parents or whose relatives follow the nation of Islam, uh, and the idea that. Um, God was incarnate <laughs> in, in yeah. the form of a, of a human figure. Uh, yeah. for, for them to be very kind of visibly manifest about their Islam in a very kind of black and white way was important to making sure that this confusion wouldn't emerge uh, again, yeah. um, and to uh, visibly display their Islam and visibly display their their Islamness or their Muslimness. So I was like, okay, you know, I mean, and and someone. I, so I, I listened to them, and this was kind of a, 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 a very um, illuminating project for me, uh, or at least research for me, uh, as a as a as an academic, but also as a as a believing Muslim. So um, it's 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 going to depend on uh, many factors how a Muslim wishes to present themselves in public. Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm I don't take it as a I don't. Advocate as strong as the position as Abdullah Hakim Murad does here of suppressing those um, uh, differences, uh, but I would, uh, or at least the need to or the requirement to, I say uh, I would argue that I think Muslims really need to be empowered, and this is something I would say to all your viewers. I would say to you, I would say to myself, uh, we have to be empowered to go to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala and really figure out what our orientation uh, is. Uh, in the world, and how we want to manifest uh, our, uh, you know, our style of Islam, our, our Z, to uh, sort of appropriate Ibn Mas'ud's citation, the, the way we want to, the style of life we want to live, the style mm-hmm. of Islam that we want to live. That's gonna not going to be the same. It's not going to be uh, uh, the same as even the next door Muslim. Um, within bounds, right? I'm not saying that this complete, it's a free for all. No one's saying that here. Um, but I, I do. I think it's important for Muslims today living in whether it's France or China or uh, the United States or the Great Britain to take stock of what their situation is, to take stock of where their level of faith is, to take stock of what their knowledge of the Islamic tradition is, uh, and to. Be empowered to go to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala and ask for guidance on this issue because it is an issue that requires guidance. But um, it's also going to differ according to level of understanding, level of faith, the specific political and social context that one lives in, um, the job, the profession that one has. I mean, these these things all play a role in determining, um, you know, how one will embody tashabbuh in their everyday lives. Some viewers may not like that; they may want like clear cut answers, haram or halal. Um, but I, I think if you're trying to, at least for this particular subject, if you're going to look for a one-size-fits-all solution, it can cause more harm than good um, because of the the potential consequences um, and the the impact to one's uh, internal character, but also one's social life. There are real, real implications for one's social life, cultural life, political life, and frankly, economic life. Mm. So those are some broad comments I I wish to make, Uh, but I wanted to highlight that you do have certain respected scholars here arguing for a more or less minimalist position on tashabu, uh, uh, and and that should give at least some Muslims today the space to figure th- to realize that okay, it's not just black and white, um, and it doesn't mean I have to be an alien from uh, the society or culture in which I live, especially for those living in in the West. Uh, that doesn't um, yeah, so. I think that's, and then it's coming back to the hadith for, and the man bi for minhum, the whom, the them here, and this is something that I emphasize in the first presentation. You know, the, the other is something that is that is uh, heterogeneous. And I, this is something that I do also encourage Muslims to reflect on. It's uh, yeah. this, The tashabu is not about um, opposing the ethics of non-Muslims, And this is what one comment, uh, one commenter said, that this doctrine requires that Muslims oppose the ethics of non-Muslims, right? And as someone who appears to be actually very educated um, and very deeply knowledgeable of Islamic tradition, that's just not the right view. That's just not the right view. Um, Because the reality is that there are some ethics that we share and with uh, our non-Muslim brethren, some of them very deep and
0: profound about giving charity, about being good people. even something is basically the Ten Commandments, which are found in the Jewish Bible, the New Testament. That's that's a great example. That's that's a very good
1: concrete example.
0: Absolutely. And even though they're listed in ten sequential commands in the Quran, they are actually all found in the Quran, funnily enough, um, that they are dotted around, but not in that particular way of presentation. Um, I've never met a Christian or Jew who would would dissent from that, or or a Muslim, you know, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, you know. Right. uh, Honor your father and mother, you know, do, do not blaspheme the Lord your God. I mean, th- th- these are shared values, which uh, the Ten Commandments are seen as the archetypal religious code by which civilized people live by. I'm not saying they're right. exhausting. Of course not. But uh, but the, that that would be an obvious commonality that uh, where, you know, Muslims are not going to object to the Ten Commandments.
1: Oh, ab- absolutely. And there, there's so many others. And once again, this isn't saying that there aren't real differences. <laughs> there aren't deep differences between Many Muslims and, frankly, some other Muslims but and, and non-Muslims, there are. But we just have to, you know, we're a community of the middle path. <laughs> we are the middle community. We have a sober outlook on ourselves and the world. Sober in the sense of um, we don't go to, ex- you know, wide extremes. Um, and having that objective perspective is very important in, in, in this matter because I think some people really lose that perspective. And I've met ordinary Muslims um that have lost this have lost perspective on this issue and feel that they need to oppose everything uh, in Western culture and Western society to the point of you know um...
0: it's also that there, there is a, a centralizing of Western, Without going into a different subject now, uh, uh, centralizing a Western civilization, Western culture, as if it's all one thing is Excellent. Know, it's Great this point. single thing called, I don't know, the Western culture of Texas. But it's not. I mean, the the, the culture of central London is very different from that of rural Scotland, which, is, believe me, is very different from rural France. Uh, goodness knows what Alaska was like in Alaska and never been there or, te- or Texas or or Malta or. you know, I mean, we can go through some very, very diverse cultural expressions. And there are they have commonalities, which is Western commonality. But the, to, to centralize this and uh, and strawman it, in the way of putting it, is, mistake, is a mistake. Well, Western civilization is very complicated. It has many tributaries coming into it historically uh, from pagan, Gre- Greco-Roman Ro- Rome, of course, re- re- reborn in the Renaissance. Uh, Catholicism, uh, Judaism, uh, the local pagan cultures in, in Europe itself, in in Germany and, and in England. I mean, and it's all a big mix, really. Um, so it's, it's very hard to I- I even map out what being Western means, let alone to typecast it as a homogenous, clearly identifiable thing. Is actually to uh, simplify it beyond the reality, and and that's also. But but one can also speak about, you know, things like NATO exists to get political. You know, NATO is a reality. Most Western countries are in NATO and they act with military force together. That's what they do. And one could talk about the Western military approach to Ukraine or to Iraq or to Libya, because th- these are realities. So I, I think one can generalize. On some things when it comes to the military operations of the west but other things as a, as a civilization that's very very dodgy you know, you know there, there are many passionate passionate christians in the united states um who would profoundly disagree with with their compatriots on a whole bunch of other issues you are secular people it, even in america you can't talk about the american view about anything really. <laughs> Um, because there's a cultural war going on in your country at the moment, which is, is tearing the country apart. You know, Trump, Biden. You know, these are two tribes at war, cultural war. So, what's the American view on anything? I have no idea, to be honest. So, um, I'm, I'm just as you keep on saying, this is a call for for nuance uh, and and necessary complexity, but also recognizing there are some black and whites. There is this thing. There are military, pretty clear military alliances which tend to act together and do x and y in the last 30 40 years uh, you don't see people pulling out of nato like france we're not going to do that no they're, they're all part of nato so it, it's it's yeah anyway that's my you know
1: i think that's a fantastic point i think really um, beautifully put uh, paul and i you know wholeheartedly agree with you and um you know a point that i also want to make is we don't want as, as muslims for those of us we don't like it when people typecast us mm. you know as, you know all muslims are extreme or extremists or you know islam oppresses women we don't like when people make those kinds of distortions generalizations you know and we shouldn't likewise do that either to, to others right if we really don't like it when people do that to us because it can lead to hostile hostility right when 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 islam, when president Former President Trump says Islam hates us. <laughs> I mean, I, whenever I show this that clip to my, my students, I just start laughing. I can't help laugh. Because to typecast one point two three four five billion Muslims around the world and two make, billion
0: now, apparently, but yeah. And,
1: and but makes such a statement and for for that to be believable, it, it's it's just it's it's comic. It's it's comic. It's just anyway, so if if you know, if we don't want others to do that to us, right, especially as minorities, when we're vulnerable as minorities, then we also need to be very careful about, you know, responding in kind. And that's where I think the Quranic verse, the exhortation, the idfa'a bilatihi ahsan, to repel in a better way, to respond in really the best way possible, not just a mm-hmm. better way, but to respond in the best way possible. Um, I mean, these two verses are sufficient enough to have a whole nother session because of their beauty and their profundity. But, you know, this is where Allah is exhorting us and encouraging us to, to find the best way to, to act in any situation. Um, and I think that's what we really need to do here uh, with Tashabu, but also with regard to treating the other um, and how we think through the other. So rather than view the other as a monolithic singularity, um, we, we, we need to understand that there is a continuum Uh, and this will help us I think um, will help ordinary Muslims to then understand what this hadith means today and how to uh, embody right I use the word embody deliberately embody this uh, statement of the prophet in the best way possible for the time and place we each
0: live. I think, although I agree with you, I, th- I think there's a mistake—not not your mistake—but to say no. that difference—I'm not sure Tim Winter's making this mistake either. To say you know, a group of people are different, therefore, you know, they're going to be seen as strange and alien, and that's not good. I mean, the Amish in America—when I met, when I'm driving around the states, you know, Philadelphia and whatnot—you have these huge Amish communities that reject modern technology, that go around in horse carts, and speak a different language, something, something. I boy, are they different! But they're not seen as uh, in any way kind of incompatible well, um, I can't speak for Americans, but I, I didn't get the sense that there was this, oh, they're different from us, that their view was suspicion and hostility. And So, so it's not all different, but I, I think the difference with Muslims is, is not that Muslims are the problem, but there is a civilizational clash that goes by over a thousand years. We, I, I've been reading a lot about this recently in Western literature, Christians by, by scholars, by philosophers, about the Prophet Muhammad beyond, upon whom be peace. A huge amount of misinformation, downright lies, Promulgated about him is only changing recently. But my point is that there is this problem the West sees with Muslims because they are part of a bigger historical civilizational clash. In the way the Amish are not. So it's not difference per se that is the issue. It is what difference means in terms of this mega story that the West the West defining itself against the other, and the other is characterized. Well, it used to be about the communists, but now it's the Muslims. Uh, and that goes back centuries. It's not Trump. by the. I mean, Trump expresses that sentiment that he's part of a long lineage that goes back nearly 1,400 years. And most of it, nearly all of it, is based on shocking ignorance of what Islam is really about, and what Muslims are really like. So um, difference is not the problem. I think it's, it's difference plus the historic baggage that goes with that particular different group. Yes, yeah. I think that's a, a
1: great point, and I think it just uh, highlights, you know, the um, you know from the com- complexity of this issue that yeah, not all yeah. differences are the same, and the kind of deep difference that you encountered when with the Amish, and that's one of the reasons why. Look, I also don't want to sort of um, say Muslims cannot go out into rural Pennsylvania or. Wyoming or, or Montana, and construct a community that is very kind of nonconformist. Um, if there are groups of Muslims that want to do that, then I encourage them to do so. But not all Muslims are going to follow the template. So a majority of Muslims are going to live on the coasts or around big cities like Chicago uh, or northern New Jersey, where I live, near New York City or California and San Francisco, which are very cosmopolitan, diverse places. And their expression of Islam are, are it's going to be not like if they had formed a community in rural uh, Pennsylvania. But I, I, I would hope and I, I would like for Muslims to have the freedom to figure out what kind of Islam they want to embody and where they want to be. If they want to live a rural lifestyle that approximate something of what the Amish do and have a very self-contained community, and if it allows them to worship God in a way that feels most authentic to them, um, and it doesn't kind of contravene the Sharia in obvious ways, then I I would hope that they have the freedom to do so, to be honest with you. Uh, But at the same time, for folks that live here in Northern New Jersey, work in the city, um, and work for corporations or whatever, where there there is some kind of demand for some level of conformity, uh, I would also hope that they can be authentically Muslim here too and and not be chastised for somehow being less Muslim, um, even though it may be a bit more difficult. So I, that's where I think there's different orientations that Muslims can have. And I would hope that, uh, you know, as uh, the, this doctrine of tashabbu can be robust enough um, to encompass these different ways of being Muslim. And that's the, the kind of Islam that I'm that I would advocate, and the kind of application of this doctrine that I would advocate, not here in America, not just here in America, but but elsewhere where that kind of um, those kinds of manifestations of Muslimness are permitted, it may not be permitted in some countries like China or France in the same well,
0: way. Oh, the UK, we can go off to the countryside and build a Muslim town. I think that will probably not be allowed. Um, <laughs> you've got the space in the United States; it's a vast, vast continent, unbelievably huge. Yeah, I, I, yeah excellent
1: point. So and yeah, I, I remember uh, going to a farm um, some years ago. Uh, it's a beautiful farm where, you know, anyway, I won't go into detail, but, uh, yeah. and I, I wouldn't trade that experience away for, for the world. It was just very, very beautiful. Is it the lifestyle that I'm going to live? I'm not going to live on a farm, but um, for Muslims that do, then it's, uh, that's yeah,
0: great. Yeah, farms are allowed. Uh, is that the last slide, by the way?
1: Um, and then Q&A. Oh, sorry.
0: Well, we've been doing that already. <laughs> we've we've anticipated what you say. Yeah. Um. I just uh wanted to uh share the book you keep on mentioning or quoting from uh Abdul al Hakim *Traveling Home: Essays on Islam in Europe*. Um. And he discusses many of these issues. Um. Um. One of them, for example, um. Give you a clue. Um. Oh, where's it gone? Let me just get the the chapter. Um. But Muslims and national and national populism. So how, how do we respond to what's going? on here, but British Muslims and the rhetoric of indigenization, that was another thing. So this rhetoric, how we got to become part of the, the, the nation state and uh, become indigenous and so on, how, how do we as British Muslims or any other kind of Muslims in the West uh, deal with that? Um, but there's lots of nuggets in here actually, um, essays on Islam in Europe, to, to continue this discussion in a more broader context perhaps but we're always an eye to how we assimilate or don't assimilate. Of course, for people like myself, it's a lot easier to assimilate because we already, you know, uh, but we, we don't have those kinds of issues to the extent we don't look different from the majority. But uh, but there are still issues in terms of ideological or cultural assimilation we're expected to undergo um, in terms of our, our views of life and how what attitudes we have, what concepts we have. And that, for me, is the sharp point where we are uh basically told to imitate to copy to assimilate um the the dominant population Uh, as it goes through as it constantly changes its moral views and its attitudes towards all sorts of things we are expected in in lockstep to follow that and to imitate it and if we don't uh and that for me is, is a deeper issue about how we respond to the zeitgeist and the zeitgeist is very liberal the liberal zeitgeist is no longer the liberalism of of tolerance and freedom and individual liberty today lib- The liberal zeitgeist is one of compulsion and assimilation in the hard sense um, and that 's happening here by here I mean the u k as well it's not as bad as in France, but it 's beginning to happen here too and and in parts of America, not all but in some parts it's there as well i've noticed. So, you know, even those of us who who, uh, are not perceived as other, we still have to face the same, many of the same struggles, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think, um, you know, and that's, you know, there there are these pressures, right, on the pressure on the one hand to conform and assimilate uh, coming from the state uh, or from uh, a particular, you know, uh, local culture that one is embedded in. Right. So with schools, for example, it's, uh, schools are often places of pressure because there's this demand to conform for children. Um, and education is actually one of the things that many of the fuqaha in the 20th century uh, wrote about, uh, especially with regard to colonialism. And they were very afraid and very concerned about the kinds of education, um, institutional, uh, educational institutions that were being forced upon, um, you know, colonized countries like. Um, Algeria uh, or Tunisia for that matter, um, uh, because it, they viewed it as a kind of brainwashing of uh, young Muslim children that would have lasting effects on future generations. So in some tashabbuh, treatises against imitation, um, the, uh, a major focus for some of the fuqaha or the ulama were uh, these educational institutions. Um, and this remains a, an issue today here within the United States and, and elsewhere the anxiety yeah,
0: recently uh, just a, a few days ago in Maryland the the court decided in Maryland because there was some I, I forget if they were Christian or Muslim parents they didn't want their they want the option to take their kids out of uh, LGBT indoctrination classes because of their religious convictions okay. and the court there the the, the supreme court whether it is a federal court in, in Maryland the state in America uh, refused it and they said no the children must must attend these classes Um, so parents are losing their their right to see their children brought up in the way they see fit and the the state is now determining what the children should believe uh, even uh, even when it Mm -hmm. touches the faith and this is a very very sinister move and um this is happening in america uh, imitation there is becoming compulsory it's not an option shall we shall we imitate these people uh You have no choice. You've got to imitate these people because the court has said, and if you try and take your kid out of the class, you'll go to prison or something. You know, you'll you'll be punished because it's now the law. So yeah. imitation becomes a moot point then when it's compulsory.
1: Right, and and this is something you know the, the education of Muslims is an issue in, in Great Britain, France, Germany. Um, yeah. You know, uh, even with the you know apparent brainwashing that's going on in China of uh, the Muslim population, education is one of those um, areas in which Tashabu really. Is a salient issue um, uh, the idea of resembling or coming to imitate um, uh, the whoever it is that you're imitating? So, um, yeah, it, it's, it, these are complex issues, and uh, uh, I, I bring up the education matter because mm-hmm. it is something that is certainly relevant today, and but it was also relevant to yeah. Muslims um, living in, in colonized. Uh, countries, uh, colonized countries. Uh, even in India right now, um, Muslim educational institutions are being scrutinized, for example, uh, as as places where what kind of Islam, what kinds of uh, uh, forms of Islam uh, are being taught in those education. We're not even talking about madrasas, but like universities, um, mm-hmm. Aligarh Muslim University, for example, Jamia M- 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 Millia, I think it's, uh, yeah, for example. So this issue of education um, is a widespread issue in the Ummah right now, but it very much relates, as you said, to uh, this idea of imitation, because when you're when you're young and you're impressionable, um, there's there are all these pressures and institutional pressures to force you to believe. Uh, and what you're being taught right by the yeah. teachers and their yeah. curriculum and I remember you know, when I was growing up here in the United States I didn't really have much exposure to Islamic history at all um and certain things that I just thought were normative were taught to me these are the facts of history and these are the facts of the israeli-palestinian context uh you know conflict for example uh, I didn't have exposure to m- you know many of the sources of knowledge that I would later have exposure to that helped me to have a different view of the world um and uh i think that that certainly can impact young muslims um in terms of their perception of themselves uh and but also their perceptions of islam and how to embody islam so uh here is very much um you know at at play and it's something that i think is going to be a a hot button uh, you know um an enduring issue and dilemma for for muslims um
0: I think that, yes, resisting enforced I- imitation is actually a theme as well, because it's forced assimilation, ideological, uh, controversial uh, forced assimilation, whether it be China or Britain or uh, France. that That's on the agenda, clearly. And people are, I mean, the, the options are very limited here. They're non-existent in France, but in America, you can homeschool to some extent, I believe. But yes. Um, which is which is something um but in many other countries in the west it's not possible at all in fact it's 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 a crime you, you know you will go to prison in places like germany and others where it is actually a but crime the UK,
1: what's the view on homeschooling in the uk are you
0: familiar Um it's, i don't think it's possible um really? I, uh, I don't know anyone who does it but i could be i could be wrong on that uh, okay i'm going to take a pass on that because i don't know uh but I, I do know it's not possible in many European countries. That's for sure. Um, mm. it, the government in France recently made it an offence to even do that. It, it was withdrawn that option uh, specifically because of Muslims, of course, who were seeking to uh, not imitate um, the, the zeitgeist. And that well, back, we're going to close that one down. Um, anyway, so so it depends, like you're saying, it's context dependent. The, the experience of Muslims in the states would be different than it is in Europe in terms of what they, how they can not engage how, how they can resist enforced imitation of non-muslims yeah and, and there's
1: also the element of social conformity with um their, their peers now beyond ideology but um mm-hmm. uh i mean that, that's not another aspect of, of school yeah. the pressure coming from your peers of yeah, how of to what it means to be cool for example um and yeah. uh that also is is it can, it can exert a lot of pressure on young muslims on know how, how to be, uh, so that, that's where that's why you know this education imitation is is really, I think it's one of the really important um, areas where I think we need thinkers to think about uh, to think about tashabu in the context of education, uh, in, in particular uh, that there just has not been enough written about it. And there, the broader subjects, yes, like what we what we've discussed to some degree, mm-hmm. but within the context of the education. Uh, I think we really need um, some of the best thinkers um, on this matter to, to think it through uh, mm-hmm. and to give guidelines uh, mm-hmm. to ordinary Muslims, uh, within the, especially in the context of education um, and and how to kind of navigate these uh, stormy waters. Mm-hmm
0: okay um I, I guess we're drawing to a, a close now um, I, I I will put a, a link to uh, the book we've been uh you've been talking about the Muslim difference where you, we discuss Muslims imitating uh, non-muslims um, it's a very readable book fascinating obviously very relevant to our, our context in the West um, and uh, well there's a lot of that I look forward to seeing the comments as always in the the uh, Comments below and see what people make of this because I think it's a a fascinating discussion. As I thank you very much indeed, uh, Dr. Yusha Patel.
1: Always a pleasure, Paul, uh, to to be here. Very happy that I, you know, that we uh, stumbled upon. Uh, you know, free, free monotheist is that the official a no, blogging theology. You're you're the free. Free, free monotheist, monotheist is my Twitter handle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but a blogging theology and just a very but free, uh, of, free
0: of shirk and free of. Uh, anyway. uh, yes, thank you very much. Well, thank you for being on. On and inshallah, you'll be a guest on it again. But um, thank you very much indeed. And until next time, salaam alaikum.
1: Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.